Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I'm your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is a fun one because this one uh, sneaks just in in my 10-year rule. That's one of my things on uh, Staff Picks. A movie must be 10 years old before I talk about it on the show for a variety of reasons. And this one just happens to sneak in there. It's a 2011 movie. And uh, this is uh, one of my goals in 2022 is I wanted to do more sports movies because I have a pretty extensive sports background. I was a huge baseball dirt rat would be the term. If you uh, are unfamiliar with that term, that is a kid who was always on a baseball field. That was me growing up. And uh, the movie we are talking about today is the 2011 baseball movie Moneyball starring Brad Pitt, which is very well known, very beloved possibly maybe not quite the perfect movie for this show, but I do want to talk about it because there's a lot to discuss in this movie. And I will just jump in with two feet right at the beginning and say, this is possibly one of the most inaccurate movies that has ever come out of Hollywood ever. Yet, despite that fact, it still works. In fact, I read one critic called it a happy accident, which I think is the, the perfect way to describe this movie. And again, I think this movie is great. I think it's fantastic. It's so well done. It is based on a book that I happen to love. The book and the movie have almost nothing in common. So that's the fun part. And we're talking about a lot of real life events with real life people. So that's what makes Moneyball so interesting. And I really want to talk about it. And my guest today uh, he is a sportscaster, sports writer from the Chicago area. I've known him for a couple of years. I've actually been on his show a couple times talking baseball, and I've always wanted to get him on the show to talk about a baseball movie. So we agreed on Moneyball a while back, and he's finally here, and I'm so excited to have another baseball nerd to nerd out with. Welcome to Staff Picks, Jack Vita. Hey, Mario. Great to be here. I've actually been called the Chad Bradford of podcasting, so should make for a fun couple hours here. Now, why is that? Because you throw weird? Well, let's just think about it. I'm underpaid. I'm very religious and I'm very effective. And you also had the job two years before the movie said you did. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey there, this is Mario. Just inserting a quick little disclaimer into the podcast. Jack and I recorded this episode a year ago, which was uh, before he got his current job at Sports Illustrated. So the joke about him being underpaid is probably no longer accurate. I think it's safe to say that Jack now has a massive Jacob deGrom-like overpay contract that he is trying to justify. Anyway, thank you. Back to the show. Okay, Jack, welcome to the show. Give people a little background on who you are and why you're a good guest for this movie. Well... First of all, Mario, thank you for having me. I love baseball. I love sports. Uh, I grew up playing baseball. I At some point, and we're going to talk so much about this movie, but one of my favorite lines in this movie is the idea of some of us are told at 18, some of us are told at 40 that we can no longer play the children's game, and but we're all told. And I feel like at a certain point in my life, no one officially told me. I didn't have a scout. I didn't have a coach. I knew I wasn't going to be a major league baseball player. So I shifted my focus to what would be the next best thing? How about talking and writing about sports? I love the talk. I love sports. I was the type of kid that this movie, by the way, came out during my or 
the the real life events happened during my childhood. I was born in 1994. My early knowledge of sports starts around the new turn of the new millennium. So 2002 baseball season was actually one of the first couple of baseball seasons that I remember. I was seven years old at the time. I turned eight as the season went on. But I do a podcast now. I have my own website. I write and podcast independently. And baseball is my all-time favorite sport. And we go in depth on there. And we've, you and I have linked up on there a few times. And so it's great to great to be on here. And I'm also a movie fan for that matter as well. Yeah, Jack is someone I've really wanted to get on the show for quite a while because we have a lot of shared interests. And in fact, I think you are, you and I are probably very much alike if we ever to meet in person. We have a lot in common. Yeah, yeah. You, me, and Albert. Yes. He's talking about Albert, who was in my Major League podcast. So hopefully I've released that podcast by the time we get to this one. Well, if you haven't, nice little teaser for things to come. <laughs> yeah. So, OK, this is a, a, a question I now ask every baseball, former baseball player who appears on the show. Like a lot of times people become good at writing about baseball or talking about that or talking about it or describing it. Were you a good player? So I that's a great question. I think it's all relative, right? So I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. I went to a high school for those who maybe have, I know you have a wide reaching audience across the country, but my high school was New Trier High School. And in 2005, New Trier High School was ranked the number 12 best sports high school in the country. And that was, and I, I went to school, I was there 2008 to 2012. So this movie came out my senior year of high school. I was a really good player growing up and then when I got to high school that was kind of when I'm like okay so my high school is the type where there was a kid above me who got drafted by the White Sox a year above me his name's Charlie Tilson or he got drafted by the Cardinals and he went over and played on the White Sox it produces like my area produces really good like great high school athletes good college athletes not a lot of great pro athletes but it's the type of area where it's extremely specialized so these kids get great coaching and I was the type of kid where I was a solid athlete, but I went to a high school of 4,000, 5,000 kids. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, if I were to have continued on that path, I mean, my senior year, the starting lineup, I think eight or nine of the guys on that team played division one baseball. So I was not a division one baseball player quality good. If I had stuck with it, I would have been a bench player on that team. And I think if I went to, a smaller high school and a more rural area of the country, I would have been maybe one of the better players on my team. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe who knows, who knows what I would have been, but in relative to where I grew up, I was not great. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing I think a lot of lay people kind of non-baseball fans don't really understand. Everybody who plays baseball is the best kid on their team at some point. And then at a certain point, you're just not, and you know, when that happens, so like yeah. there's a time when you're you're a god. I'm a baseball god. And then you get to the next level and there's the kid who throws an 80 mile an hour slider. And I'm like, I'm retired. I'm never going to hit that ever. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, my history with baseball is I always describe myself as kind of like a unicorn cuz I don't have your typical baseball path because as fans of staff picks may know, I am the biggest nerd ever. I'm the world's biggest <laughs> nerd. I just am a dork. I just was Dungeons and Dragons stuff like that. But I love baseball. I absolutely love baseball. And I always describe myself in high school, I was too much of a nerd to really be a jock. But I was too much of a jock to really be a nerd. So I was kind of right in the middle. 
And what I do is I just taught myself how to hit. And this is as a kid, like I was never the biggest, I was never the strongest, but I would, I had this game where I'd take a wiffle bat, there's plastic yellow wiffle bats, and I just take tennis balls and I would just try to drive those things as far as I possibly could. I mean, I would do this 200 times a day. You do this enough times as a kid, you get these really strong wrists. And the thing with that is you also learn eye to hand contact. I'm just throwing the ball up, hitting it with a wiffle bat. And you are producing all the power, not the bat, because the bat is so light. And so I developed a reputation as just the best hitter in my area because I had these quick wrists and I had good hand-eye coordination. And like pitchers, when I was like 13, 14, 15, were terrified of me because that ball is coming right back at their face. I love to hit it at people's faces because I was kind of mean. <laughs> so this is my thing. So I just taught myself all these skills. But I never liked organized baseball. I didn't like playing on teams. I didn't like other kids who played baseball. I just wanted to go up there and hit the ball as hard as I could and make everyone go, ooh, ah. I love putting on shows and batting <laughs> practice. And this will be, the I promise, the last time I ever compare myself to Ted Williams. <laughs> but Ted Williams, yeah, Ted Williams would often say all he cared about was hitting. They'd see him out in the outfield just practicing his hitting swing, and that was literally me as a kid. I didn't care about defense, fielding, anything. I just want to hit because everyone stopped and watched when Mario came to the plate when I'm at a certain age. So that's my background. But, again, I'm a unicorn. Most kids are a lot like that. I didn't like being on teams. I hated coaches. I hated being coached. I just I was I was an odd kid, but I was good until all of a sudden I wasn't. I loved it all. I, was, I loved it all. I was a true dirt rat. I loved – I played third base. I played center field, and then – I actually moved around, and I was a little bit of a Mark DeRosa. I was a utility guy. But third base, center field, those are my two main positions, and I, I loved it. I loved base running. I was, I was, those were probably the stronger parts of my game. I was a contact guy. I wasn't, I wasn't hitting. I wasn't Pedro Serrano. I wasn't crushing the ball. But I was pulling the ball down the line, singles and doubles, stealing on the first pitch, and I had, I had speed and defense yeah and i'd play center field i was pretty good at defense over time because i was i just practiced so much so you eventually get pretty good but the, the one thing i wanted to talk about with my story which ties into this movie is yes. that like i said i was too much of a nerd to really be a jock we'd go on the team bus and i remember my coach used to yell at me because i'd be reading books on the bus i wouldn't talk to the other kids and he'd say ball players don't read that was a big thing i get yelled at all the time <laughs> But I was always reading stuff like Bill James. I was reading, you know, these stat baseball theories. I love talking about fantasy baseball. Even back when I was 12 and 13, I was running fantasy baseball leagues through my school. And this isn't like uh, rotisserie like where we know now where you add up the stats. This is me rolling dice. You had the APBA dice game. Have you ever played those? Uh, those came along before my time, I would say. Those became Stratomatic, which was more computer-based. So same time. So I was running these leagues when I was a kid, and I was just fascinated with the idea of roster construction, you know, probability wins on base percentage, how to optimize your lineup. So I was doing this stuff when I was 12, 13, 14, and that's the side of baseball I was always really interested in. And that ties in perfectly to this movie where I honestly could have had a job with the Oakland A's coming out of college. I know I, I kind of teased you with that story. <laughs> I think you actually did tell this story on my show. But so I've heard it. I, I, I'm not going to ask you about it. I'll let you continue. OK. Yeah, this is an interesting story because I don't talk about this much. And just I again, I'm, I'm such an odd little unicorn. I never fit in with any <laughs> other kid. But coming out of baseball, out of uh, high school and college, 
I loved baseball so much. I ran so many fantasy baseball sims. I was widely known in our school, the guy who runs all the fantasy simulators, who's always trying to get people to join his league and stuff. So coming out of college, I was so fascinated by all these things I'd learned in computer baseball and simulations that I wanted to work for a professional baseball team. And I came out of college in 1996 in Santa Clara, California. And I'm like, I'm going to write to a baseball team and say, I want to work in your stat department. This is all I care about. I just love baseball stats. I love Bill James. I know all the stuff that was really kind of underground at the time. It wasn't really in Major League Baseball. And my dad had a friend who worked for the Oakland A's. He was a, a former college buddy of my friend. They were football buddies. And my dad's like, oh, write to this guy. He works in the A's front office. He'll know you. You know baseball. You already go to college five miles down the road. It would be great. So I spent all this time out of college writing to the Oakland A's trying to get a job in their stat department. And I could not, for the life of me, get anybody to ever write back to me. I must have sent them 15 emails. I mean, I'm writing them all the time. Because I don't want a job. I don't want to work. I don't want to be a grown-up. I just want to work in baseball somehow. And I know baseball stats and probability and all this stuff. So this is one of my great regrets in life, Jack. I could have been involved in this whole Moneyball era. This is exactly the stuff I was doing, the stuff that I was thinking. And it just didn't happen. So this movie kind of haunts me when I see it now. Like, I really could have been right there in the middle of this. Man, that is – that's brutal. I mean, I – I don't really know what to compare it to, but I can't imagine what that must feel like. I mean, you were right there. Could have been you. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, I mean, admittedly, I might have just been some you know flunky little stat cruncher that sits in a corner, but I didn't care. I would have been paid for getting, been paid for doing what I was already doing in my spare time. So this world behind this movie is so familiar to me. I know every single little stat they talk about. I know every person. I know Bill James. I still own all of Bill James' original first draft books. It's crazy. Man, yeah, I I have a couple of Bill James. Uh, I read them a long, long time ago when I was a kid. But I was again similar as I mentioned before. I was too young to potentially come in and innovate in a, a front office unless you wanted to hire me when I was five years old. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, there's child labor laws. This isn't a mine. <laughs> <laughs> that would be another movie, and it would probably be awful. Yeah, it's, I'll just say this just uh, to kind of explain uh, people of you may know fantasy baseball or baseball stats a little. In 1995, five, six, or seven, my brother and I would always dominate any fantasy league we were ever in because I had a strategy. And this is great. You'll love this, Jack, because this is Moneyball in a nutshell. That I had figured out it doesn't matter about home runs. It doesn't matter about batting average. All that matters is you want a lineup that never makes outs. And I used to call it my merry-go-round offense. Now, we'd always play American League rules, so there was, no, there was always a DH, no pitcher. The goal is basically you want nine guys in a row with an on-base of like 380. That team will never, ever lose in fantasy baseball because it's a, it's a merry-go-round offense. It just keeps going and going and going. There's never a chance for pitchers to get them out, which is exactly what Moneyball is. That's why it kills me so much. I had this <laughs> merry-go-round offense. This is why my brother and I would always dominate league because we, we used the strategy. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That's great. You know what's funny is I recently read Brian Kenny's book. Are you, do you pay any attention to Brian Kenny's work? No, I don't know him. Okay, Brian Kenny, longtime Sports Center anchor, used to do the fight night stuff with Max Kellerman, and now he's over at MLB Network. And he has a great show. It's called MLB Now. If you're a baseball fan, it's the smartest baseball show there is. It's the only sports show that I 
treat as appointment viewing. I record it every day. I try to watch it live if I can. It's on in the afternoons. And Brian Kenny wrote a book a few years ago. I was reading it, and one of the great stories he had, he was doing something similar to what you were doing. There's a simulator called What If Sports. Have you heard of What If Sports? Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, so he was playing on What If Sports, and this is like mid-2000s, late two, yeah, right, mid-2000s. He's playing in a league with Bill Simmons and Max Kellerman, a bunch of these guys from ESPN, and Max Kellerman was figuring out these little – and I won't get into the ins and outs of what his exact strategy was, but he found he found a strategy within that game. And it was like this. It was this game similar to what you were playing where you would have a salary cap and you could pick major league players and or maybe they're fictional players and you'd have the stats and you would he, he was figuring out what you want to value, what is being undervalued, how you can put all that together and then build a championship team out of that. So once he started winning all these games in the simulated league with this new strategy that he found, well, guess what happens? Everybody else in the league copies it. Mm -hmm. And so he's talking with Billy Bean one time and he says, hey, Billy, you have no idea what this is like. I'm doing this right now. And Billy's like, I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> this is my life, man. Welcome <laughs> to my world. Yeah. And that's kind of the message I want people to take from this movie that – this movie, Moneyball, exists in a singular point of time, 2002, the Oakland A's. By the time 2004 came around, every team was doing this. So, like, this, everyone watched this movie like, oh, wow, Billy Beam figured out the system no one else has figured out. Yeah, they did. They eventually started doing it, and, like, this is how baseball works now, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it is how the game works. When someone figures out something, you want to be ahead of the curve. And in recent years, we've seen the Tampa Bay Rays being at the forefront of a lot of analytical revolutions. One of the biggest ones is I, they're the first team that I remember seeing, hey, you know what? We're going to trot out a relief pitcher to start the game, and we're going to call it an opener. Mm -hmm. No one had really done that before. It had been used. There had been bullpen games in the past. No one had built a team around that idea of we're going we're gonna to value our relievers more than our starting pitchers. And what have we seen – since that happened, that's that's where the league's shifting, and it's it it it, go, it happens again and again in terms of this being ahead of the curve, and that's a copycat league, and everyone everyone wants to get on board with the new trend. I remember the biggest baseball simulator in the world is Diamond Mind Baseball. You, ever, you play Diamond Mind, right? Diamond Mind. What's Diamond Mind? Okay, it's a computer simulation. It's like the the big one if you do simulations online. And I remember when teams started using openers where you'd use a reliever for one inning and then put in the starter. I remember the guys at Diamond Mine were pissed because they had the greatest simulator ever invented for baseball, but they had no way to account for that strategy because it was new. There was no way to program that into their system. <laughs> so they were, they were so annoyed at all these people writing in and asking, how do we do openers? And they're like, we can't do that. That's not how baseball works. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Okay, um, you did ask one question, and I just wanted to clarify one thing. You said, you know, how do you live knowing you could have been part of the Oakland A's, this could have been you, this could have been your world? Yeah. There was one huge flaw in my logic and development at the time that might not have worked with Oakland specifically. What would that be? All I cared about was stats. That's all I care about is numbers and optimizing runs and stuff like that. I never played with an economic model in any of my games. Oh, yes. So, yeah, Billy Bean can say, well, yeah, any idiot could have figured out that on base is the best way to judge players. If I could do that, I'd just grab all the players. But 
Oakland was operating under the uh, the problem that they didn't have any budget. So I might not have been exactly what they were looking for because I didn't care about runs per dollar, which was their thing. So I wanted to clarify that. Okay. Well, say you weren't far from it. You could have figured that out. I did not have an economics degree like our friend uh, Peter Brandt here, and I did not come from an Ivy League school. So, <laughs> like, I always joke, oh, that Peter Brandt kid, that could have been me. But he had a little more going on than I did, to be honest. <laughs> yes, the fictional Peter Brandt that does not exist. It was based off of, well, I'll, I'll let you take the reins here on everything. I don't want to. I don't want to hijack your podcast. Thank you. See, Jack is very wisely avoiding one of the pitfalls. For those of you who don't know, when you have someone on who runs their own podcast, but they're your guest, they often try to steer the podcast, and Jack is wisely not doing that. So, <laughs> give Jack a little round of applause here. He's figured out the game. <laughs> I can pass the ball when you need me to pass the ball. <laughs> yeah, he's like Billy Bean. He's figured out it's an imperfect system, and he's trying to count cards. <laughs> right. Exactly. To summarize this a little bit, Moneyball was a book that came out around 2004. Did you look up the exact year of the book? Yeah, I think it is 2004. I think that's right. It came out in 03 or 04. Actually, it may have been 03. I think it was 03. Okay. So this book came out, and this book was the talk of baseball because there's so much in this book that had never really been discussed in baseball strategy or baseball wisdom. In fact, there's another book, now that I think about it, it was called Everything You Know About Baseball is Wrong. I kind of forget. It was like a sporting news book. Did you ever read that? I haven't read that one. That was a cool book because it brought up a couple topics that Billy Bean did not get into, one of them being your best hitter in the lineup should always be first. And that would be that would be the idea that you want him to get as many at-bats as possible, right? Exactly, which was unheard of at the time. And to this day, teams still don't do that. But this whole book laid out all the stuff like if you have a Barry Bonds, you have a you know Mark McGuire, they should bat first. Do not put them fourth. You want them to have as many at-bats as possible, which, again, is so revolutionary because nobody does that. Yeah, people still don't do it. Hey there, this is Mario, and here's another disclaimer for you. Uh, this is why it's bad to do a sports podcast and try not to date it, because after we recorded this episode in 2022, the New York Yankees did bat their best hitter, Aaron Judge, leadoff, and there's a couple other teams that have done it recently. So it does happen from time to time, but it, it is not mainstream. So the podcast argument still stands. Yeah. So anyway, there's all this stuff in the early 2000s challenging baseball lore, and this money ball was the big one. And I love this Moneyball book. I mean, this book was like crack to me when I read it because this is all the stuff I was already thinking of. But it was also a very controversial book at the time. Are you aware of that? Why would the what's the controversy behind the book? I have the I have the book sitting right in front of me, by the way. There's uh, three, really. One is that it's inaccurate. It doesn't really portray the way things went down Two, Billy Bean never actually won crap. I don't know why we're talking about him like he invented something. <laughs> <laughs> but the big one at the time is that a lot of people thought Billy Bean himself had written this book. And it's not. It's written by a guy named Michael Lewis. But the the perception was that Billy authorized this book to point out how smart he was and how much better he was than everybody. So he took a lot of flack for that, and I felt bad for him. That is very unfortunate to hear. I have a Billy Bean story, by the way, that I can pull out at some point while we talk here. But I have another funny thing. So I, I have a personal story. I, I want to bring up here about Billy Bean. Mario, did you ever watch the HBO special when Will Ferrell played in 
five spring training games in the same day. I vaguely remember seeing it, but I don't remember the specifics. There is a fantastic part. For those who don't know, they did this thing. Will Ferrell did it to raise money for cancer research. It was in 2015. He went to spring training. He played in 10, played 10 positions on 10 different teams across five spring training games in one day. And these are real spring training games. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because they have a lot of fun with Billy Bean in this special. They start with Will playing for the A's. They make a whole little segment out of, hey, Billy, Billy Bean, the real life Billy Bean saying, hey, uh, hey, Will, can you come over here for a sec? I got to tell you something. You've been traded. And then you get a great Will Ferrell reaction of him being really upset and being super over the top and funny. And he says, he says, Billy Bean is an a-hole who sits in his office at Oakland Memorial Coliseum and does nothing but watch Moneyball on an endless loop (laughs) asking people if they want to, hey, you want to come into my office and watch Moneyball? So that's we're we think we're done with Billy Bean at that point because he moves over. He plays on the Mariners and he plays on a bunch of other teams after the credits. They have a lot of fun. They they put in a little basically a deleted scene. It, you'd have to watch a special to see it. Billy Bean is sitting in his office watching Moneyball and he is mouthing along <laughs> the words to Brad Pitt's depiction of him he has them all memorized and he's saying them as he watches it that is amazing i don't remember that at all i have to find that (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know why i say that because billy bean okay for people who don't know billy bean has a reputation for kind of being a dick he's not very well liked and even back at the time i remember when this movie came out like the reputation was billy bean was this guy who wins with nothing somehow he wins with this oakland team that has no budget But nobody likes trading with him because he somehow is going to screw you every time. He's smarter than you. But he's very prickly. And I remember that, like, when this movie came out, Billy Bean famously didn't – or when the book came out, he famously wanted nothing to do with the book. He disavowed it. He wouldn't even read it. It's not surprising at all. Yeah. And I imagine he's not much of a fan of the movie either, to be honest. I think at this point he probably has fun with it like we're seeing in – that special on HBO, but I guess this is a good time for me to pull out. I have story about Billy Bean. I have a story about another character in this film, and I'll save that when we bring up that character. But when I was in college, I went to, before I transferred to Valparaiso, I went to a school called Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and they had a program. It was called the Sports Journalism Trip, and we got four credits for this trip, and the trip was to go to every ballpark in the state of California and write pregame stories, postgame recaps. And we had some connect. Our professor who took us out there had some connections to some important people in the baseball business. And it was an amazing trip. It's a great time. We got to meet with one of the A's owners at the time, Lou Wolf. And we met in his office and, we got to ask him questions. He was a really nice guy. And at a point, the there was a kid with in the group of – there was a, a guy who connected the meeting with us, and he brought his kid along. His kid says, hey, I have a question. He says, my question is, would you rather have one great player or four really good players? And Lou Wolf says, that's a great question. 
I think we'll ask Billy Bean. So he calls Billy Bean on the phone while I'm sitting in this room. And I think I was 20, 20 years old or something like that. I've, I've interviewed a number of people on my show. I've, I'm a little bit more seasoned now as a journalist, but I remember my jaw dropping when I heard Billy Bean picking up the phone and he says, Hey, Hey, Billy, we got a question here. Hey, kid, you want to say that question again? So he asks the question, is it, would you rather have one great player or four really good players? And Billy Bean says, is the great player Mike Trout? Because I would take Mike Trout. And then what followed with that, Billy just keeps talking and talking and talking. He sounded like the friendliest guy ever. Hmm. And the owner the owner was like, hey, hey Billy, I'm going to have to call you back. I'm sorry. I, like, we can't talk now. I'm doing this meeting. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, this is great. Keep this phone call going. This is Billy Bean. I want to <laughs> listen to all of this. But he sounded like such a super friendly guy. He ends up hanging up on Billy Bean. And he's like, Billy, he always wants to talk. Super friendly. He's like, he's too nice. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. It's okay. Well, the point of all of this for people who may not know, if you just know the movie, Billy Bean is a legendary figure in baseball for a couple of reasons. Even without this movie, without this book, he still would have been famous for just for winning with uh, Oakland, who has the lowest budget of any team basically ever in baseball history. And they have never gotten any more of a budget. They're still dirt poor. And they yeah. somehow are always competitive. Even to this day, you're probably listening to this in 2022. The Oakland days will probably be competitive this year and no one will understand why. And it's still to this day because Billy Bean. Yep. And he's not to be confused with, there's a former player by the name of Billy Bean who is often confused with this Billy Bean. The one in this movie has an E at the end of the name. So you see Billy Bean spilled, spelled like rice and beans. That's not the Billy Bean that we're talking about. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get into the movie here. And this movie actually isn't th th that complex. The story behind the movie is actually far more interesting. So Jack and I will probably try to some, uh, drop in some trivia stuff for you along the way. But why don't you explain to people Billy Bean's story and why it's interesting and why it kind of dovetails with this book? So Billy Bean's story was that he was a very high draft pick. And actually, it actually is a little bit, I don't want to say deceptive. There are things about this movie that are not entirely honest. But one of the things is Billy Bean wasn't actually the first pick of that draft by the New York Mets. And let me do you know what year that draft was, by the way? Uh, in the movie, they have 1979. So I'm guessing it's 79 or 80, maybe. Yeah, it was like early 80s. Do you know who their first round draft pick was with that Mets team? Uh, is Daryl Strawberry too obvious? Yep. Yep. It's Daryl Strawberry. So it's not like he was the he was like the 23rd, 24th pick. So it wasn't like he was a guy like Josh Hamilton, who was can't miss number one, number two prospect. He was a high prospect, highly regarded as a five tool player, similar to a, a number of guys like Mike Trout, like Josh Hamilton. And when we talk about five tools, they mention this in the movie, it's you have a, the hit tool in term, two hit tools in terms of hitting for contact, hitting for power, being able to field well, being fast, and having a good arm. And he was all of those things. He came up through the system, did not live up to expectations, and he ended up becoming a scout and working his way up to this position, position as a general manager. And really, as we mentioned, with this, what is so amazing. The Oakland A's have always had such a low payroll. 
And like you said, they're always, always competitive. Yeah. As a uh, fan of the Seattle Mariners, there's no team that annoys me more than the Oakland A's who never are bad. And they're our big rival. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Billy Bean, big-time player, big-time prospect, had everything. uh, He looked on paper like the ideal baseball player, like a future star. The scouts were drooling over him. He eventually flopped about as hard as any phenom can flop. But what's interesting with him, and that's why this movie is so rich, and again, why the book is so rich, why they wrote the book in the first place, is that Billy Bean reinvented himself. He retired as a player, and he went to become a scout. And at the time, I think that had never happened. No players become scouts like when they're 23. (laughs) But Billy just wanted to reinvent himself and stay in the game somehow, but still be a part of it, just not as a player. And he eventually worked his way up to general manager, which is the highest position in a team under the president. The GM controls everything. And I think, is he the only GM maybe in baseball history who has ever had that kind of a playing pedigree behind him? No, there's some other guys, and there are some high-level scouts. I know there's a guy that I actually met up with recently. His name's Logan White, and he was the director of scouting for the Dodgers. And he has a similar story. He was a guy who was drafted in the 70s maybe right around the time of Billy Bean they're right around the same age and Logan had he was a actually a Mariners prospect pretty good prospect he had five or six shoulder surgeries and he ended up going the scouting route so I don't think it's super uncommon but at the time I would say in terms of in terms of general managers it's it's interesting because there are we've had different kinds of general managers over the years we've had the guys who are the Peter Brands of the world. Mm-hmm. We've had the Billy Beans of the world who are uh, maybe a guy who's better known for their G- GM career. And then we've had, like, if you want to cross over to another sport, we've had the Isaiah Thomases of the world mm. or the Michael Jordans of the world where these guys were better as players than they were in putting a team together. So there's a few different kinds of approaches. And I think Billy Bean... It's kind of a nice little middle ground between those different camps. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we could talk about this for an hour and at the risk of this being a long podcast, we're not going to, but the thing, the takeaway you have to know is that Billy Bean was very unique. Like I described myself as a unicorn among baseball kids as a kid. He was a unicorn among general managers and that he he had a huge playing background. He had flopped really hard. He learned a lot of lessons about why he flopped, and it just gnawed at him. He just had this grudge against baseball because he he just felt it had failed him somehow, and he couldn't figure out why. And that's the whole thesis of the book, that Billy Bean always has this rage inside of him to prove the system wrong. And so that's what makes this such an interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Okay. So there's one other thing I want to talk about before we get to the plot of this movie, and that is... Um, we, we got to talk about the inaccuracies and I hate to do this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know people, people love this movie, Jack. I, I don't want to break their hearts. So all I will say, this movie works really well on the level that it's presented as, but we're going to delve into some stuff that might, might ruin your worldview a little bit here. Yeah. The thing with this movie is I don't want to say that it's terribly inaccurate because pretty much every, well, there are inaccuracies. There are for sure. But it's it's more a case of just ignoring greater parts to the story because the 2002 Oakland A's, this, it's this story in the movie of the scrappy batch of underdogs that didn't have really any star players 
And that's not the case at all. <laughs> no. They had they had the 2002 AL MVP Miguel Tejada. They had the 2002 Cy Young Barry Zito. Tim Hudson had uh, I can't remember if he actually won a Cy Young. I think he may have a year or two before that. And then Mark Mulder was a lights out. They had a basically an Atlanta Braves type of rotation with Mulder and Zito and Hudson. They had this great pitching rotation. They had really good players like Jermaine Dye and Eric Burns was another guy on that team and Eric Chavez. So it's not the story of Scott Hatterberg. I, I <laughs> all due respect to Scott Hatterberg. It's not it's not the Scott Hatterberg story. But the guys like Scott Hatterberg contribute to the success, and there's a lot to the idea of them. All right, you know what? We did lose Jason Giambi. We did lose Johnny Damon. We can find guys that we can replace them with on the cheap, and that's something that Billy Bean has done for the last 20 years or so. So it's 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 not like it's a, an absolute lie. I think it's more that they're just not focused. They they turn a blind eye to some of the really important things about the A's from that season. Yeah, I mean, it's a Hollywood thing. This story is more interesting than the real story. That's that's how you have to look at it. And they're, they're not trying to lie to you. There just comes a point when I like this story better. <laughs> so we'll just change a couple things. We'll just omit the fact that the A's had the three best pitchers in baseball at the time. <laughs> well, the other thing is that, well, I mean, I don't know if I'd say three best when you got Pedro Martinez yeah, or a bunch of other names out there, but they probably, they have the best top three rotation in the AL in terms of having one, two, three, those three pitchers, they had the best in the whole American league. And that isn't mentioned once in this movie. The thing with this movie, I think that's important. If you want to talk about production is this was a movie I remember hearing about for years. It was in production hell it was not really moving anywhere for a long time. And they had brought in different direction, directors, different scripts. Originally, this movie was supposed to actually include Barry Zito playing himself and a bunch of the players actually playing themselves. But it just wasn't it. It, it wasn't going to create a great movie. And in my opinion, I know a lot of people do not like this movie because because of the inaccuracies, because it's not entirely honest. But the thing, with Mario, for me, this isn't a work of journalism. This is a work of film. It's not a documentary. So if you have to embellish a little bit or create the Hollywood story in order to make a great movie, then I'm on board with it because it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, and I would agree. There's two really realistic great stories that do come out of this movie how billy bean is able to compete with no payroll and scott hatterberg having this amazing moment in his life like, those are legitimately yeah. two good stories there's some other stuff that's maybe not quite so accurate but <laughs> i gotta bring up one because this one kills me this, okay th this is gonna ruin this movie for a lot of people and i apologize but just <laughs> understand it's a hollywood movie so we're meant to believe that the A's are struggling and having a hard time competing with these rich teams, and that is so not correct that I just looked up the A's are like the winningest team from like 2002 back to the 70s. <laughs> like they had won more than any team in baseball, and not only that, they were the most advanced statistically than any team in baseball. And this is long before Billy Bean got there. They had this uh, executive, Sandy Alderson, who had really started up this statistical program, advanced stats, blah, blah, blah. 
So all this was there long before Billy Bean got there. And that's the thing that really, really kind of pisses people off if they know the story. <laughs> this guy, Sandy Alderson's like, you know, we had a great system. And then Billy showed up and just helped me implement it. And Billy's really good at trading, making trades and stuff like that. But like the system was already there. He didn't just invent this one day with Peter Brandt in a control room. <laughs> so that's the thing that really kind of grinds people's gears. Yeah, are we just going to pretend that the whole Bash Brothers era with Tony LaRussa never happened? It was only uh, 10 years before this. Yeah, yeah. so anyway, yeah. The, the, the less you know about real-life baseball, the more you will like this movie. And again, Jack and I still like this movie, too, but you really oh, have I to take it, with, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. There's, it is not realistic in the slightest. Oh, oh, oh I thought there's there, – I remember there's one other story. There's three stories to take out of this movie. Scott Hatterberg has a great moment and a great comeback. Billy Bean competes with no budget somehow and does this for year after year after year. But here's the third story, how Bill James won a, a World Series for the Red Sox two years later. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is a true. I I think the thing for me is I wouldn't say that it's entirely a lie. I, I just think it's it's fabricated. It's it, there. Like you said, there are highlights of truth there and we're making a movie out of it, I guess. And it's so good that they get away with it. They really do. Yeah, if this if this movie had flopped, and by the way, when I heard that there was a Moneyball movie coming out with Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean, I was thinking, how? I mean, is this movie? Is this book really a movie? Like it seems more like a documentary in terms of the real story. So I'm glad that they did what they had to do in order to make this a great film. And it's. You know, Aaron Sorkin wrote, he did the screenplay on this movie, and he was hot off The Social Network from a year before that, which I think is another tremendous movie from this era. It, the script is so brilliant. It's so smart. Oh, I love this movie, Mario. Yeah, it is amazing they could make a movie about baseball stats. Yeah. <laughs> and this is coming from a baseball stat guy. This is stuff I don't talk about with lay people because they don't understand it and it, it's not interesting to them. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have the same reaction to you that, as you. When I heard they were making a Moneyball movie, I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. How could this possibly be a movie? And it's funny if you know the book. The book, a lot of it, the big chunks of the book are about the draft, how Billy cons the draft, how they find value. They will only draft college players because college players are good immediately, and you don't have yeah. to. So that's a huge part of the book that they just cut out of the movie. And like, I don't think the winning streak is even more than like two pages in the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't remember the winning streak being discussed at all in the book. Yeah. So when this movie came out. I didn't see it. I'm like, I have no interest in seeing a Moneyball movie. They're just going to butcher that book so hard. And I remember I worked with this guy named Jim Mosier in uh, my office, and he came in one day and said, I just saw the greatest movie. And I'm like, what? He's like, Moneyball. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me that that's a good movie. And he's like, I don't know. It's great. He's like, he's like, did Scott Hatterberg win MVP that year? I'm like, no, wait a minute. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I had to go look at the movie, and I'm like, begrudgingly, I'm dragging my feet. I'm like, I really don't want to see this movie, but... Again, it's so charming. It just works. Yeah, the thing I'll add onto that in terms of when I saw this movie, I think you asked at the beginning, why am I someone who should talk about this movie? Well, this came out my senior year of high school, and I didn't actually see it in theaters because I had a little bit of skepticism. And then my dad saw it. He saw it on a plane. He came home. My dad used to fly to London a lot for work, and so he'd have these long flights, and he'd watch movies on there. And I remember, so it came out in September, October of 2011. And then 
at the time, you know, this is the early 2010s, the way that a lot of people would consume movies was it would you do an, a pay-per-view on demand would be the first place you could watch it. That would typically be on there before you could get a DVD rental. And then after that, it would it made its way to Showtime or Stars, and then of course it would do cable. So from the years I remember watching this movie on pay per view, and then between the years 2012 and 2015, this was one of those movies we had whichever Stars or Encore, whatever it was, the premium channel that this was on, and then of course it made its run and it was on TNT and whatever it was on cable. It was on a lot. It's one of those movies that. I can jump into at any point in time. And between those years, 2012, 2015, I've seen this movie, maybe not entirely in one sitting, but I've jumped into this movie at least 50 times Mm -hmm. easily between those three years. And so I, I have seen this movie so much and I love it. And then some, it comes out of nowhere and it gets nominated for six Oscars. Yeah. (laughs) Moneyball. Really? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that's the trade-off. They made a wonderful movie out of an unfilmable book, which I don't know how they possibly did that. But there's the trade-off is that there is an, an entire generation of baseball fans who think Jonah Hill invented baseball stats. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the trade-off. Well, you know what's also funny is that Jonah Hill was a bit of an inspired casting choice in this film. Prior to this, he had done super bad. And then after that, he had been sort of typecast as his character in Superbad, maybe making a little cameo in a movie or he would be he was always a side character. He never he didn't really get a lot of big time roles. Mm -hmm. And this was a bit of an inspiring choice. He hadn't done. So this isn't a this is it's a funny movie, but it's not a comedy by any stretch of the imagination. I think Jonah Hill is fantastic in this role. It's very different from a lot of other roles that he does. And because of his performance in this role, he ends up getting a lot of work afterwards. He gets into Wolf of Wall Street and War Dogs and a number of other films that come in the 2010s. I think this is a big time breakthrough performance for Jonah Hill. Yeah, absolutely. And Brad Pitt as well. People have never really taken him seriously as a dramatic actor. He's got an Oscar nomination for this one. Like every single performance in this movie is flawless. Like I can't say anything bad about it. That's why this is such a fun episode to delve into because I don't even know how this episode's going to go. It's going to be all over the place. <laughs> he said as we're about 40 minutes in already. <laughs> I know. That's the thing. We're not going to talk about the plot that much. We're this, the, the bigger story is the stuff behind it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. For sure. Let's get into the plot. So this movie opens with a quote from Mickey Mantle, which is perfect. And I love this quote. He says, it's unbelievable how much you don't know about the game you have been playing all your life, which is a great quote. It really sums up this movie in a nutshell. And it sums up the book in a nutshell. Everything everyone thought about baseball until about the late 90s, early 2000s was actually not correct. It was a very caveman-like, antiquated way of approaching the sport. And all of a sudden, we're going to go through a big dynamic change here, the way baseball is managed, run, you know, drafted, everything. Everything's changing right around here. And this movie is just kind of emblematic of that. Right, absolutely. Okay, so we open with the 2001 ALDS. I I will turn this over to you. Not, not so much because I respect you, Jack, but because the Seattle Mariners should have been in the 2001 <laughs> ALDS, and we were not there, even though we set the record for the most wins in a season that year, and then we got upset by the Yankees. So I do not like talking about this playoff series. 
<laughs> well, the main thing to there, the the main thing that I remember from this series at the time, and like like you like I mentioned earlier, this is the start of my baseball memory. And it was after 9/11. A lot of the country was rooting for the Yankees. Uh, my family was not, we, <laughs> which is another story. But the Yankees had this series with the A's, and really, I think the most memorable image from that series was the fantastic Derek Jeter flip play, where there's a a, a wild throw that's not going to get to home plate, and Derek Jeter dashes from shortstop to the first base side of the of the pitcher's mound. And he picks up the ball, spins, and flips the ball to Jorge Posada. And he tags out Jason Giambi. And that's really Giambi's last moment as a member of the Oakland A's. And I remember reading. Wait, 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 wait. That was Jeremy, not Jason, right? Oh, it was. I thought it was Jason. No, because that's one of the the inaccuracies in this movie. That's Jeremy Giambi. He's already on the team in real life before they sign him in the movie. Are you sure? Because I remember reading at the time. I remember reading in magazines, and it was like, is Jason Giambi going to learn how to slide when he becomes a member of the Yankees? You know what? This is an unprecedented moment in staff picks because we have to know the answer to this. So I will <laughs> give you a moment, Jack. Please please look up that really quick. Who is that sliding into home play? We'll cut this out, but I, we have to know. Yeah, that's, that's number seven, which is not Jason Giambi. That's Jeremy Giambi. You are correct. All right. He looked it up. It is indeed Jeremy. Not not that I had to be right. I just want to make sure I don't sound like an idiot here. <laughs> so we, we, will, we will determine that was Jeremy Giambi. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm the one that sounds like a moron. So I'll, I'll leave that in. So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that was the big Derek Jeter flip play. The A's should have won that series, but they lost. It was a big tragedy for Oakland, but it's even more tragic after the season because all of a sudden they lose three of their best players to free agency, which is exactly what happens to Oakland almost every year because they can't pay anybody. Yeah, it's it's still happening today, unfortunately for them. And that is the thesis of this movie. Oakland's budget is $38 million. New York's is 120 and this is in 2001. So I know that budget is pretty much even worse now it's probably like 39 million to 200 because <laughs> oakland i mean I, I grew up there i know that stadium they cannot get an audience they cannot get fans in there that stadium is crap nobody goes there they just there is no historically there is no money in oakland that's just a, a constant they have to work around yeah the oakland days in the year 2021 had the 20th highest payroll so 71 million dollars is what they allocated to their team there's teams under oakland i cannot believe that well, Tampa is just incredible. They were in 2020, Tampa, I think I'm actually seeing where Tampa is, but Tampa in 2020 had the 28th highest payroll, the third lowest in all of baseball, and they went to the World Series. So Tampa's kind of taking over the space that Oakland occupied, and their payroll, Oakland's payroll was almost, it was like double what Tampa was that year. But it nevertheless... You got the Dodgers and another and some other teams, the Yankees, Dodgers, teams going over 200, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so Oakland would just get outbid for players every year, and this is one of the sad realities if you don't follow baseball. If you are a fan of a poor team like Oakland, do not get used to your star players. And it sounds so harsh, and it is. You, you do not get attached to them. They will be playing for New York or Boston or L.A. someday. And that's the reality of being an Oakland fan 
And after the playoffs, Billy goes into his uh, manager or the, the owner's office and basically lays down the law. I need more money. I cannot compete with these rich teams. They're stealing my players. We just lost Jason Giambi, who's the best hitter in baseball, aside from Barry Bonds. Like, we're losing everybody. We can't. We need more money. And the owner says, predictably, Jack, what's his answer? <laughs> well, I, I don't have the direct quote, but he basically said something along the lines of like, eh, you'll do fine. You can figure it out. Yeah, the owner's answer is really, we're not here to win championships. We are here to do the best we can under the resources that have been allocated to us. And Billy cannot handle that answer. He hates that answer. Yeah, Billy's a competitor. He was an athlete, and then he brings that competitive energy into the GM suite, and that's what we see. Yeah, let's talk about this. Okay, so this is one of my favorite scenes in the book, and they do keep it pretty verbatim in the movie where – Billy goes to his, he goes to, you know, a big long stretch where he loses all his free agents. The team is totally going to be gutted the next year. In parentheses, other than the three best pitchers in baseball and our MVP shortstop, but we won't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is the war room where he's planning out the next year's drafting, free agency strategy with all the scouts. And this one's fun because this is really a war of the worlds. Yeah, there are a couple of these in the movie, and it's this old school versus new school mentality in terms of, I mean, it gets a little more new schooly once we introduce Peter Brand to the film, but I mean, these, these are such fun scenes, especially Mario, maybe someday you and I will be able to find Fabio ourselves. <laughs> We're looking for him. We need somebody who can sell jeans. <laughs> <laughs> to summarize this scene for people. Billy gets in this room, and again, Billy's young. For a GM, he's only in his early 40s, maybe late 30s, I kind of forget. He's 40 at the time. Yeah, so he's in this room with all these old baseball grizzled scouts, you know, the guys spitting, chewing tobacco into cups and stuff, and they're all saying the same stuff that any baseball scout in the world would say, like, oh, we got to draft this guy, he's got five tools. This guy, he's got a good face, baseball body, the ball pops off his bat. And, and Billy effing hates these terms. <laughs> There's one in particular where the scout says, uh, we, we don't want to draft this guy because he has an ugly girlfriend. Yeah, he, which means no confidence. Yeah, that's the thing. That's that's a real thing in baseball. And this is, they capture that in the book. A lot of scouts, if they want to draft some high school superstar, if the guy's got an ugly girlfriend, they're like, he's either got no confidence or bad eyesight, and they won't draft him. That's like a real thing. Yeah, and if this is where Billy breaks out the quote that, you know, I mentioned to my one of my friends recently, I'm, I said, I'm going on a podcast. I'm going to talk Moneyball. And he said, you know, Moneyball's not that – really, there aren't that many quotes from Moneyball that I remember. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it's one of the most quotable movies for me. And then he said – okay, he, like, started to think about it, and this, this quote is one that he remembers. And the problem that we're trying to solve is there are rich teams and there are poor teams. Then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's us. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's Billy's mindset in a nutshell. This is an unfair game. All you scouts are trying to draft that we've always drafted for 40 years, but you can't because the game has changed under us. It's now haves versus have-nots, and we are the have-nots, and we have to change the way we look at baseball. And that's really the whole thesis of both the book and the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's another quote from uh, Brad Pitt. We are the last dog at the bowl. We are the runt of the litter. The runt will always die. He gets no food. Oh, it's so good. It is so good. And then what the scout says back, he's like, that's a very touching story, Billy. But <laughs> he changes the subject. Okay, so 
the thing I want to get into here, and this is going to go a little off the movie, and I know you just read the book, so this is important. There's a big fundamental difference between Billy and the scouts here, and they kind of gloss over it in the movie, but it's very important to understanding this concept. Scouts want to draft somebody who's 18, and they want to project what he's going to look like at 27. It's called, you know, future scouting, not stat, not result-based scouting, a potential-based scouting. Billy does not believe in that because poor teams don't have the advantage to do that. You can draft these young guys. Most of them are going to flame out. You can hope and dream you're going to get a superstar one day, but it won't matter because in three years he's gone to free agency to a rich team. So Billy has a rule he will not draft high school students, and that causes a big problem in the book, right? Yeah, there's. I remember there's some a lot of this a lot of the scenes that we see with the scouts are actually pretty accurate to what the conversations were in the book. And one of the big things is, like you mentioned, he wants to draft guys who are college players. Mm -hmm. So one of the big draft picks that came out of I think it was this draft, at least the draft that's focused on in Moneyball is Nick Swisher, and Nick Swisher was a big star at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. And Nick Swisher had a really good pro career. Now, <laughs> it is a little funny because in the book, they spend a lot of time just absolutely drooling over Jeremy Brown, who's the guy who's the catcher at the end of the movie that we see the clip of. And we'll talk about that later. Jeremy Brown had a total of like 10 or 11 major league at bats. So there are some things in this book that don't age quite as well as they probably hoped that it would. But. Yeah, it gets pretty contentious between the scouts and Billy. Yeah, and the basic gist, of, here it is. For this, I'll try to explain this for a layperson. Billy wants 22-year-old college students who are good now and can compete now. You can't project how much better they're going to get. They may not get better. We need guys that come in here, get on base, hit now. We never, ever, ever are going to draft a high school player. And the scouts are furious of this, this, about this because this goes against everything in the game of baseball where you project what a person's going to be. And Billy hates that because he says we are not in the, in the position to take those risks. And this is a big difference in the world. It's called results-based scouting versus potential-based scouting. These scouts, their whole lives have been potential-based scouting. Billy says, this guy hit 300 in college. We want him. And the scouts are like, but he'll never get any better than that. And Billy's like, I don't care. And so the scouts are like, why are we even here? We can walk out of here. You don't need us. You could just take the best hitter in college right now, and that's all you want. And Billy's like, exactly. So that's the difference here. Yeah, and I do empathize with the scouts in a lot of ways in this movie, and especially now because I think what we've seen 20 years later is at the time, like you see the idea of herd mentality versus individuality in this film in terms of, Billy and Peter Brand going against the grain and doing stuff. The herd mentality is now what Moneyball embodies. And that's that's what's going on in Major League Baseball. So there are a lot of old school things and old school approaches that are now seen as archaic and no longer valuable that I think are extremely valuable. And I do feel for some of these scouts because ideally, I think if you're going to build a winner, you want to balance both strategies. Mm hmm. And I would say it's kind of cyclical. Like, I know after this movie came out, after this book came out, people started to do more of what Billy did. But then, again, this is the key to baseball. You want to do what nobody else is doing. You want to find value. So all of a sudden, everybody's drafting college kids. They're like, hey, now high school kids are undervalued. Yeah, So, so it goes exactly. cyclical. Yeah, so it's nothing in this book changed things permanently. It just always goes in cycles. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah, so Billy gets in his first fight with the scouts and blah, blah, blah. We're going to skip through that. And now we get a little flashback here to Billy as a player. And this is actually really important in the book. This is the heart of the book. Because I will, like Jack already said, Billy was a failed player. The reason Billy failed is the same reason he's trying to explain to the scouts. They're all like, well, this guy's got potential. He could be great one day. And Billy says, but he's never hit. And they're like, well, he could hit one day. He could be amazing. And Billy's like, that's why I failed. Everybody told me I was going to be good one day, but I never actually produced at any one of the big levels. So why do I, I've seen how this doesn't work. So it very much ties into his own real story. Yeah, it's a it's a really good story. And yeah, I guess I had nothing else to add. <laughs> but yeah, and also the one other thing I wanted to add is that Billy was not some meathead athlete, and that's what's also important to his story, because he had a full ride to Stanford. Yeah, I failed to mention that. He could have played quarterback at Stanford. Yeah, he was a genius. He was really good at sports, really good at school. He could have gone to Stanford, had a four-year degree for free, punched his own ticket anywhere in the world, but he didn't. He took the quick paycheck to go to baseball because all these scouts told him he would be amazing, and he wasn't. So he has been bitter about that for years. And fun fact, I could be wrong, but I think, so how old is Billy now? He's got to be, yeah, he's around the same age. Who would have played, who ended up playing quarterback at, at Stanford at that time, Mario? Do you know? Was that John Elway? Yeah. So who knows? If Billy Bean goes to Stanford, John Elway's career may not have unfolded the way that it did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, the temporal junction point for all sports right there, 1979 in the draft. <laughs> Yeah, Elway, I looked it up. He arrived at Stanford 1979 to 1982, those three, those four years. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the movie here. So Billy Bean is now all contentious with his owner, all contentious with his scouts, which is accurate. This is accurate to the book. This would have been true to real life. And now we go to where the movie veers off from reality a little bit here, but it's it's good in the movie, where we're going to meet Peter Brandt. <laughs> Yes, Peter Brand, a.k.a. Jonah Hill. And this was this character was inspired somewhat loosely by the real life character was Paul D. Podesta. And there may have been another character in there that they kind of morphed into Peter Brand. I think I have a little theory about this. I think that Paul. D., so apparently Paul D. Podesta read some of the movie and he's like, yeah, screw this. This isn't me. Do not. Please do not include my name in this movie. I said, okay. Do you think that that happened before or after he found out Jonah Hill was playing him in a movie? <laughs> That's a loaded question. But no, I, I think Paul DePodesta always had dreams of being the next Billy Bean. He wanted to take Billy's ideas, take him to his own franchise, and do them as himself. I think he wanted his little uh spotlight on himself as possible that's my prediction but it could be he just like yeah i'm not having jonah hill play me <laughs> so he did have a nice little run as the gm of the dodgers uh prior to this film like around the mid 2000s i want to say he he got hired away from from oakland to be the gm of the dodgers and it went okay i mean they had they were, were solid but it didn't go it wasn't amazing Paul DePodesta at this time is actually in the Cleveland Browns front office. He's moved over to football. Yeah, I, I just read that the other day, yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to add one thing on DePodesta there. He was, when he got, went over to the Browns, 
there were these GM meetings and he was at these and apparently people were sort of making fun of him behind his back as like this Ivy League nerd. Paul De Podesta was actually like a I think he played football in college. Like he was a he was a great athlete. So he's not really like Jonah Hill. He's you know. <laughs> oh great. So I'm the fat kid from Superbad. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna talk about this story in two different ways. The real life one and the movie one. And the movie one is so charming that I have to love it, even though it's complete BS. So you're telling me in, you're telling me that he would never fly to Cleveland to talk trade negotiations? I mean, he might. I don't know. Billy Bean is kind of crazy like that. But, okay, I got it. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to break everyone's heart. This guy, Paul DePodesta, who was Billy Bean's assistant, was already on the Oakland A's and had been there for two years at the time of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so there's none of this pulling some guy out of Cleveland in the middle of a trade talk and all of a sudden money ball is invented. That is complete BS. Depodesta was already an assistant and working in the scouting department. So anyway, apparently you can now trade for front office members and just bring them onto your front office. Yeah. They traded for him like George Costanza with Tyler chicken. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so explain the scene in the movie. Cause this movie, this scene is so cool in the movie where he finally meets Peter Brandt. Yeah, so, and is it, by the way, is it Peter Brand or Peter Brandt? I think it's Brand. Yeah, I keep saying Brandt, but I think it's Brand. Yeah, it's Brand. So, Peter Brand, so, he flies out, and this is real-life GM, Mark Shapiro. He, was, he might still be running the Indians. He's been there a long time. Do you know if he is? I believe they're called the Guardians now, my friend. <laughs> That's going to take some getting used to for me. Oh, yeah. Well, I just did a major league podcast. It's much more difficult than that one. <laughs> so he served as the GM to 2015 was his last year. Longtime GM of the Cleveland Indians because they weren't the Guardians then. <laughs> but he flies out. They meet in Cleveland. They're talking trades. And I will say, I know a lot of people are probably going to say, like, yeah, GMs never really fly out to talk trades you know what a lot of these gms executives they're friends with each other i mean they work in the same business so he's not flying out to cleveland for trade negotiations they're they're hanging out i'm sure that at some point billy bean has gone to cleveland or maybe maybe bark shapiro has come to oakland or they've hung out and played golf in phoenix where a lot of these guys are located but these guys hang out with each other in real life there's actually a story billy bean Worked out a trade when he was watching college football with Kenny Williams, the GM of the White Sox. That's a real life story. So he wasn't in real in real life. He wouldn't be flying out to Cleveland to just talk trades. Now they're probably talking trades while they're hanging out for sure. Like that's you you work with. It's like a business partner type meeting situation. Now you would not, <laughs> of course. All of this is not real because this is not what happened in real life, however. But they talk trades, and he said he has a couple of trade offers, and he says, okay, I like. I, what do you think about this, Mark? And Mark seems like he's on board with it. He looks around the room, and Jonah Hill is standing there. Jonah Hill, or Peter Brand, I should say, he's <laughs> he just shakes his head at both of the trade offers and shuts down this trade. And then after that, Billy is just so bewildered. Why does he listen to this guy? That's what he wants to know. Yeah, this is very important to the movie because Billy's talking GM to GM. And when GMs talk, 
they're the last line of trades. What they decide goes. And Billy's trying to trade with this guy from Cleveland, and the Cleveland guy's looking over at some fat young intern, and every time the fat kid shakes his head, the GM won't do the trade. And so Billy being is shocked. He's like, what does that kid know that nobody else in this room knows? And so after the trade talk, Billy literally goes, stalks him right down to his cubicle and says, who are you and why does Shapiro listen to you? And this is where we start a really interesting relationship between Billy Bean and, we'll say, Peter Brand. Peter Brand, yes. And then, of course, he's going to call him up in the middle of the night after maybe he's had a couple drinks or so and he wants to find out, would you have drafted me in the first round? <laughs> yeah, okay. There's one scene we're skipping over here that I, I want to talk about. Yeah, this is where he pulls Peter out into the parking lot of Cleveland offices because Peter can't talk in front of his bosses. He's an employee of Cleveland. And so Billy's like, why do you know all this about baseball? Why does he defer to you? And so Peter says, well, you know, I've been working on all these spreadsheets, all these formulas. I'm an economics major. I've worked at all these systems of how baseball can be more efficient. And again, we can get really complicated here. But I will summarize Peter's speech where he basically says most baseball thinking is medieval. It's just old men who have been doing things the same way for many years. But basically what baseball comes down to is you're not buying players. You're buying runs and wins there's a whole formula behind this i don't want to get into it but the <laughs> basic gist of it is is there's 27 outs in a game of baseball that's it every out is valuable it's gold and you can never ever give up or waste an out and so he's figured out a whole formula that i can maximize your potential outs per dollar and he says you know johnny damon you just lost him he, he's not even worth the money they're paying for him because he makes too many outs it's all about who makes the most outs not who the biggest name is and again really complex formula read the book if you really want to get into it but it all comes down to how much is a player worth per each out in a baseball game and that's what peter understands and billy kind of understands a little bit but nobody has phrased it to him the same way that peter just did yeah and with all of that that you said it's it's wrapped in a really great script from Aaron Sorkin. It's the 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 words that he uses are just it's just it's a very smart little uh, spiel that he goes on, and I really enjoy it. It is, and it's wonderful because it's it's accessible to the layperson, and that's the phrase I like using. Yeah. I know this stuff inside and out. I know everything about wins above replacement, runs created versus twenty seven outs. I I live this stuff, but my wife doesn't like my kids don't, they'd watch this movie and they would understand it. So it's really an amazing job that they somehow, you know, condense this down into a package that's understandable for non-baseball junkies. That's exactly right. So then we get to the scene that you said where Billy calls Paul up, would you have drafted me in the first round? Because Billy has, you know, famously was drafted in the first round. <laughs> and Peter's too polite to say no at first. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, what does Peter say exactly? He says, uh, he says, I would have drafted you in the eighth round. No signing bonus. You weren't that good. <laughs> and you know what? Billy agrees with him. He's like, I never produced ever. I was all theoretical. Of course I didn't deserve a first round signing bonus. So Peter's been the first person in his life who has told him the truth. You were overvalued. You were not worth that money. And he hires Peter instantly. Yeah, he's pack your bags. You're coming you're coming to Oakland. And then they make it look like he just moved out he moved in in the dead of night, like by the time that Billy goes in the office the next day, he's already there. <laughs> I don't think it worked out that way. Well, you know, if there's one thing we know about Jonah Hill, he moves quickly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So the whole rest of the movie is Billy and Peter Brandt just basically blowing crap up. They're going to take over the entire system and change everything about the way baseball is thought of, structured, the way teams are drafted. And we get a nice montage here where they they really try to cram a lot of advanced stats into the movie, and they do a good job of not overwhelming you. But we do bring up Bill James, who is very important. And I will I will give you the Bill James part here. Yeah, so Bill James was, I mean, you you grew up with, you, were you reading his stuff as a kid? At 12, yes. At 12, yeah. So he was he was really the first of those kind of new age analytical and revolutionary guys at the time. And he got, he ended up getting hired by the Boston Red Sox and implements, they, they, they take a lot of his ideas. He also, wasn't he the one that created the Fielding Bible and a lot of those kind of awards? Yes. Almost everything interesting that has come out of baseball at some point came through Bill James. <laughs> yeah. And he would have these, there'd be the Bill James, basically an almanac. I have a couple of them right here. Let me see. I have Bill James handbook 2007. And then I got another one 2016. And these books are great. I mean, there's a lot that's just he, he talks about how he values players. There's a lot of statistical stuff. Like I said, it's like an almanac. And then, you know, he he brings up new age ideas. Like you said, everything interesting comes from Bill James. And then a lot he is revolutionary because what do we see after this impact of Moneyball and Bill James? These front offices hiring guys like Bill James. Look at Keith Law mm -hmm. is another one who he worked in a front office and now he's a journalist. And there are a number of other guys who have similar. They're they're basically baseball nerds. Yeah, this is very important to this story. And I they gloss over it a little in the movie because it doesn't work as well in a movie. Bill James was an outsider, and this is very 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 important. He was not a former player. He had no no connection to baseball whatsoever, nothing to do with the sport. He was just some guy who was like a security guy, security guard in like a pork warehouse in the Midwest. Yeah, pork and beans factory, yeah. I mean, nothing says Midwest like that. <laughs> in his spare time, he just started writing these pamphlets about how there were all these inequities in baseball, how people judged stats incorrectly. And he would just send out a newsletter. He send it, he'd, he'd do advertisements for it in like the Sporting News and Baseball Weekly. And people would send away for his newsletters. And he really developed a reputation as this underground stat nerd that was spouting all these revolutionary ideas about all this thing, all these things that could be done to baseball to make it more efficient. But he was not all that well known. You had to be a nerd or me to kind of know <laughs> who this guy was. And by the 80s, he was fairly well known. By the 90s, Peter Brandt would have 100% known who Bill James was. Uh, Billy Bean would have known who Bill James was. But this guy was not employed by any team. All his stuff was theoretical. And that's the main thing here. Baseball, historically, is run by old guys who played back in the 40s and 50s. And they're like, boy, you don't know shit about baseball. Why would you know? So <laughs> they become managers. They become general managers. So they were very resistant to take out on this outsider and his theoretical ideas. But he was really, really, really a big deal at the time among the right people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, this whole thing is we talk about Bill James. We learn that Peter Brandt is a disciple of him. We're going to we're gonna actually take his ideas and put them into baseball. And Billy is like, screw it. You know, nothing else is working. We're poor. We have no way else to compete. Let's try it. And that's very important to the story, too. 
it only works because Oakland has no recourse, really. Yeah, and that's, I think, what's interesting is if you want to look at the teams that have been revolutionary in terms of analytics, again, I point back to the Tampa Bay Rays. What do they have to lose by doing it? They play in a small market. They don't have a big-time – if you're playing in New York and you're the Yankees and you have as much money as the Yankees – why would you ever do anything different from what the Yankees have done? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe at this point in their franchise history where they've gone 12 years without a World Series, and that's a long time when you have that big of a payroll and you're the New York Yankees, maybe they start doing some things differently. But there's a much greater incentive if you run the Oakland A's or the Tampa Bay Rays or Baltimore or Pittsburgh or Kansas City. Kansas City was... They they had a form of bullpenning in 2016 that or 2015 sorry 2015 when they won the World Series they had a form of bullpenning which is now like I said I mentioned the Rays being the first team to bring out a, an opener for a game and do that make structure their team around that the the Royals did a, a similar version of that it was a it was sort of like the first step of that where it was like we're going to put our money into our bullpen. We just need starters that can give us five, maybe six innings, and we turn it over to our bullpen. And like we talk about, if you're Kansas City, you why, why not? Why not go for it? Why not try something new? But if you are the Dodgers of the world, the Yankees of the world, the Mets of the world, the Red Sox, and it's interesting that the Red Sox end up embracing these new age analytics, but it's there's a much greater incentive for the teams that are the have-nots to be the revolutionaries in this regard. Yeah, I agree. Like, Billy Bean, if this fails, Billy Bean could lose his job, which, eh, whatever. I mean, he'll probably get another job somewhere. But to Oakland, there's very little downside to this kind of a strategy because Oakland will never drop a 10-year, $300 million contract on somebody. So they're never stuck under an albatross of a contract. So they're really free and flexible to do whatever. And so Billy recognizes kind of an opportunity here to – rework his team and strategy from the ground up with very little risk to him. Okay, so here we go. So Peter and Billy have figured out a new system that basically we don't have to replace Jason Giambi, our greatest hitter. We don't have to replace Johnny Damon, who was overrated and overpaid anyway. (laughs) We just have to get similar players that will, as an average, come close to their potential in the aggregate. Yeah, and so here we go to the scene where they go to the scouts and they start throwing out the names that – the scouts are horrified by. <laughs> you got David Justice in there. Who David Justice, of course, this is him on his last legs at this point of his career. But Billy says, you know what? He can give us something. You got Jeremy Giambi, who's already on the team <laughs> at this point in real life. Yeah, ignore that. Ignore the fact that Giambi's already here. And in the movie, we'll just say we're going to sign him. Yeah, and I remember that too the first time I saw that because I remember as a kid being like, oh, wow, these Giambi brothers are teammates on the same team. And obviously that's happened in other places before. There have been other pairs of siblings. But that definitely stood out to me as a kid playing baseball with my brother, thinking, oh, that could be us someday. And we're Italian too. And then I see this movie and it's just like, well, that's a lie. And then Scott Hatterberg is the other one. And Scott Hatterberg, of course, is a guy who had some kind of a – he had structural nerve damage in his elbow. He couldn't throw anymore. He had been a catcher, and they decide they're going to transform him into a first baseman. 
Yeah, and for non-baseball fans, these are all real players that were really on the A's at the time. So none of this is fictional. Kind of the circumstances of how they get there is a little fictional. But these are all real players. <laughs> Scott Hatterberg really was a good-hitting, bad-fielding catcher for Boston. He had uh, arm surgery, had elbow or a nerve damage, could not throw. And But this is Billy's philosophy that we are now the island of misfit toys. I know which players will give us value, even though they don't look like they will be good on paper. And the scouts are like, all these guys you're naming bring nothing to the table. All they can do is hit a little, and that's it. And Billy's like, that's all we need. They get on base. They walk. And, and players, to, to be honest, abhor the idea of walks. That's always a big thing. Like when I was a kid, I used to walk all the time because I would never swing at a bad pitch. And my coach would be like, you're the best hitter. Swing. I want you to swing. I'm like, but they're walking me. A walk is as good as a hit. But a lot of people don't agree with that idea that a walk is as good as a hit. But that's Billy and Peter's thing. These guys will all walk and are patient. They'll get on base. And he's like, this is what we're doing now. We're now card counters in Vegas. We're going to con the system. Yeah, and it's funny because I know you've coached youth baseball quite a bit, and you played youth baseball. A walk is as good as a triple in sixth grade baseball. <laughs> You get walked, you just tell the kid don't swing the bat, and you can steal second and third when you have those 60-feet base paths. Uh -huh. You can do it on the first two pitches, and now all of a sudden you walk the guy, and now he's on third base. <laughs> Here's a more uh, logistical reason for that as a, kid, as a kid. Growing up in Seattle, I'm sure growing up in Chicago, no different. You have a lot of 8 o'clock in the morning games, and it's freezing out. <laughs> yeah. I hated swinging the bat when it's freezing because it vibrates and it hurts your hand. Yeah. So I was so prone to take walks in the morning because just I didn't want to hurt my fingers and hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, a lot of those, a lot of those games where you're playing and you have like, you, just, you know, you're a kid. You don't invest in like Under Armour type apparel, and Under Armour wasn't around when you were a kid. But I, I started getting some Under Under Armour gear later in my playing career, mm -hmm. but. Early on, it's a lot of like you're going to put a sweatshirt on and then you put the sweatshirt on underneath your jersey and then you have like this weird bump of like where the hood is, <laughs> where your like last name plate or your number is. And then or you can put it on over like you can pull the hood out and it can go over the back of your jersey and then it covers your number up. And it's just it's just weird. It's like a it's just a weird youth baseball thing. <laughs> But yeah, so that's, that's the key here. Billy wants misfit players who can hit, and that's it. Nobody else wants these players. Billy, now famously, this is one of the weaknesses in Moneyball. Billy could not give a crap about defense. And that's one of the, that's one of the criticisms. Have you heard that? Yeah, so how accurate did you feel this was? I mean, did you feel that they valued defense at the time? Uh, I mean, I know that the for people who don't know baseball there's a stat now called wins above replacement there's fielding runs yeah. those stats didn't exist in 2002 it was much harder to quantify fielding and i believe billy's argument and peter's argument and probably bill james argument too at the time would have been the difference between the best and the worst fielder in baseball isn't that big and so it doesn't really matter and i think the difference in offense would make up for it i think that would be their thinking yeah, and I don't I don't agree with that, and it's actually interesting because the A's have since I remember they had a, a team about ten years ago where they had of course these Moneyball teams, and then in 2006 they went to ALCS, and really that's the most success that Billy Bean has had is winning one playoff series in however many years, 
And yet he's set for life with that job as he should be because I mean, they've had really good teams and you feel like at some point they're probably going to break through. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll win something at some point, but they had another batch of teams. So then of course they, they kind of, they kind of go through waves where they have a five, maybe a three to five years where they're really competitive. And then they have to, they don't ever tank. They're never horrible, but then they have a stretch where they're reloading, they're stockpiling, they're selling off assets and acquiring younger assets. And I remember the team that they had about 10 years ago and they won the division. They went with a different approach and the approach was let's, they, they started hoarding starting pitchers. They actually went out and they traded for John Lester and Jeff Samarja and they, they had a a great starting rotation and then they put up premium defensive players in their field. So like you said, this goes in waves. So at the time they did not value defense. And then of course, once other people stop valuing defense, that's when Billy Bean strikes and he ends up valuing defense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, perfectly put. Yeah. That, like you said, this, this movie is set in 2002 and everything here is true for 2002 by 2006. It's maybe not true anymore because everyone's doing different stuff. And that's even applies to Billy Bean. Yeah, and that's I was thinking like that that other stretch of teams they had was around 2012 through 2015, 2013, 2014. That that stretch and those teams were really good and it was a totally different approach 10 years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this does uh bring up an interesting quote. I was going to save this for the end, but I guess this would be the perfect time. Is that <laughs> there's a famous saying in baseball is that the best team in baseball wins the division because you play 162 games. And Billy Bean is very good at constructing a team that will do well in that part. And then you start getting into the playoffs where it's best of five or best of seven. And it's yeah. much more open to statistical improbabilities where a fluke can happen. Someone can get hot for four games. And the old adage is in the, in the uh, playoffs, pitching and defense is what wins. And Billy Bean historically has not really been a defense guy. And so this ties into the most famous quote about Billy Bean. Billy's shit doesn't work in the playoffs. (laughs) Yeah, it's been said about other teams, too. I mean, it is there is something to that. It's a different game in the postseason. And like you said, one mistake, one error, just like the strategy should be. And I think one thing that's happening right now in baseball is there's been so much high strikeout in terms of, oh, well, home run or strikeout or walk. Just those are your primary three outcomes of at-bats a lot of times these days. Not a lot of people are valuing contact hitters and guys who just put the ball in play. You get into the postseason, you want guys that put the ball in play, and you want guys who are going to make plays defensively because one error can derail a season, as we've seen so many times in these playoffs over the years. Yeah, and that's... But it does tie into Billy and Peter's theory, and they don't explicitly say it in the movie, but I know enough about these guys to know what they'd be thinking. Billy and Peter would say, my job is to construct a lineup that's good for 162 games. And a seven-game playoff is such an insignificant sample size that you cannot possibly predict that. So, like, anything could happen in the playoffs, we can't control that. That would be their mindset. Yeah, you just want a seat at the table, if in their case. So... Now, the rest of the movie is just Billy and Peter bringing in these unorthodox players and everyone being skeptical and somehow it working and everyone being shocked. And we're not going to go into too much of the details because this is already kind of a long podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) I do want to talk about two scenes here in particular. Okay. So 
there's this is in much greater detail in the book than the movie where they talk about how Billy and Peter target unorthodox players in the draft, people who don't look like players but produce somehow. And we got one of them in the movie here, Kevin Euclid, the Greek god of walks. Yeah, we'll talk. I'll let you talk about him in a second. And then Jeremy Brown, who is a huge, huge part of the book, and they only mention him at the end because he trips over first base, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> So talk about these two guys and why they're important to people like Peter and Billy and why no other team wants them. Well, Kevin Euclid was, and he had a really good career too. I think he even won a batting title one year with the Red Sox and he played on a couple other teams. He played on the White Sox for a little bit. Kevin Euclid is not a guy that you look at and say, wow, that guy looks super athletic. And the same thing with Jeremy Brown. Jeremy Brown, the thing with him was he was like a 240 pound catcher. I think he played at Auburn and they they like like going back to that earlier quote in the film they're looking for fabio they're looking for these guys who are caught and especially think about this is a steroid era where baseball players are starting to look like football players and you're looking at these guys who can run a 4 five forty and they're jacked out of their minds and jeremy brown and kevin euclid are neither of those things and I think one of the great things about baseball that we see in this film, especially it highlights it is that, and this is something that Jerry Seinfeld loves to talk about is the democracy of baseball. Everyone bats, everyone fields, except now we're going to have the DH in the national league. So that changes a little bit, but nevertheless, the idea of it doesn't matter how big you are, what you look like or how size, what size you are. This is a game that anyone can play regardless of size, really. You got the Jose Altuve's of the world, and of course there's a big picture a few years ago of Altuve with Aaron Judge standing next to him on second base. Jose Altuve could be 5'4", for all we know. He's a little guy. Aaron Judge is about 6'10". And what I think is so good here is that you have Kevin Euclid. They talk about him a lot in the book as just the, the value in terms of this guy is an on-base machine. He draws a lot of walks. He's a great guy. He's the Greek god of walks, which is a fun little thing with his Greek-sounding last name. And then Jeremy Brown is another guy where he's just – he. And it's, it's really unfortunate that Jeremy Brown did not have the type of career that was hyped up in Moneyball. And you have to wonder if – with him being in the farm system and reading the book, I'm sure someone passed on to him at some point, hey, this was written about you in Moneyball, if that got into his head a little bit. I can comment on that because I know this. I came in with this story. that That's one of the other dark sides of this book. There's some of the controversies. Jeremy Brown hated this book because for years he was just known as that fat catcher because that's how they describe him in the book. They talk about how fat he is. And he hated it because that followed him. People would taunt him with that name. It really it really ruined his confidence. He never had fun playing baseball. So when he retired, he was probably really happy because he got a lot of attention for this book that the average prospect would not have gotten. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it is a sad story. You, you do wonder what would have happened if this book was never written. But at the same time, prospects flop all the time. Okay, so let's get into the story here so we can wrap this one up. So basically, here's all the players they're going to bring in that the scouts are horrified by. Uh, Chad Bradford, famous submarine pitcher, throws almost underhanded. He was a real pitcher, although he was also on the A's in real life before this movie. 
Yeah, he was. (laughs) That's not accurate that they just signed him. But they did decide to start pitching him more. They bring in Jeremy Giambi, blah, blah, blah. But the big one is Scott Hatterberg, who most people who know this movie would know he's the heart and soul of this movie, played by Chris Pratt. And uh, (laughs) one of the best scenes in the movie, the two, are both uh, Hatterberg scenes, the scene where they sign him and then his home run at the end. Talk about the signing scene. The signing scene is great because – he they come outside his house and this is this actually transitions to a story about I mentioned there are two guys in this film that I have interactions with and the Billy Bean one I guess I was just in the room for I didn't get to say anything to Billy Bean I did see Ron Washington aka Wash who is the infield coach he was a bench coach and he's been around a long time he managed the Rangers, when the Rangers went to the World Series, back-to-back years, they bring him along, and I'll tell the story in a second, but Billy Bean and Wash go and they say, they call him up, hey, 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 uh, Hattie, can we, can we talk? We'd love to, we'd love to sign you potentially, and he's, <laughs> he's like, all right, that sounds good, and he's like, can we come inside? We're right outside your house, <laughs> and this is, looks like it's right around the holidays, and as the off-season would be, and there's a good scene here where Especially at the, the, he says, he says, uh, it's not that he's like, I've never played first base before. And Billy Bean says, it's not that hard. Uh, tell him wash. And he's like, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> <laughs> and wash, by the way, this is where I can mention my wash story. So I saw wash at wash had a sad story because he had substance abuse issues when he was managing the Rangers. So he he uh, stepped a, a, away from the game for a couple of years, and then he came back and he was no longer managing. But he actually, do you know where he went when he came back after he as a he was a bench coach once again? Do you know where he went? What team? Texas, I know at one point, right? Well, that's where he managed. But then after he left Texas, he went back to Oakland. Billy Bean brought him back, and he was the. It was right when he got brought back. I was at spring training that year. It was 2015. I was watching batting practice. I was right behind, like, it's spring training, so you have a lot of access to players. And Wash is just kind of walking around, doing his thing, you know, chopping, playing pepper with some of the guys. And, you know, he just looked like a friendly guy. He looked right at me, and I just – he was pretty close to me too. And I I nodded at him. I said, Wash – or no, I didn't nod at him. I just said, wash as he looked at me i said wash and he just nodded his head and smiled at me and he <laughs> continued his day <laughs> your brush with greatness right there yeah <laughs> the guy who taught chris pratt how to play first base yeah and i wish they used the real life wash in this movie that would have been a nice little cameo in terms of having the real life guy because whoever plays wash only has about three or four lines so i think you could have gotten real life wash in this movie um, but the great part about this scene is, of course, they offer him a contract, and then you see the human side of Hatterberg getting together with his wife and embracing her, and then his little daughter, where she kind of wanders into the meeting. And that actually sort of sets up the next scene where you get Billy Bean interacting with his daughter. And there's some really good scenes with his daughter in the film, obviously an actress of who Casey Bean. But what I love about it is there's some just little touches in this movie where it's like they're sitting there eating a bowl of ice cream. And she says, 
are the rumors about you true? Are you going to get fired by the A's? And he's like, what are you talking about? Where'd you hear that? She's like, people online are saying that. And keep in mind, this is 2002. The internet was very different. We didn't have any social media, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the internet was out there. And now you see that human side of like, think about the stuff that gets written about public figures today and think about how easy it is for their kids to read it if they're seven or eight years old or 10 years old or whatever it is. And so I love that touch that they include in this film. I do have a question. Is the stuff with his daughter in the book? Because I don't remember it being in there. No, it's not. It's yeah. Because the book, if I recall, the thesis is Billy Bean is so driven by winning and beating the system and trying to figure out how to get Oakland a championship. He really has no time for family or social life or, or interactions outside baseball. And that's it's kind of the tragedy of Billy Bean. He's so driven. He can't really make stuff work with his family. So I, I just am trying to that's why I asked if that's actually in the book or not. Yeah, no, you're right about what that that was the tone of Moneyball. There wasn't really anything about I don't remember anything about his ex-wife. I don't remember anything about his ex-wife's husband. But I actually read that they shot some scenes that they didn't use with his second wife. Um, or the, an actress playing his second wife, and they didn't use it in this movie. Okay, and it just all comes back to the thesis earlier that the book itself is great, but it's not really a story. It's not really a movie. It's just, yeah. hey, look at all this cool stuff happening in baseball. And this movie is, look at this cool movie we can make out of a variant of the story. <laughs> so... You can enjoy both. Yeah, I absolutely love some of the ways that they shoot the scenes where they montage the games with the Oakland A's, where you see the streak, but then there's also scenes earlier where you see the A's struggling. Mm -hmm. And the way that they mash in real-life audio clips from radio shows and sports shows from now we're approaching 20 years. At the time, it was 10 years, 2002. They dug up all those. And they montaged them with real-life footage from those games of them either losing or winning. And they also montage the team, the actors. And we haven't even mentioned that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this movie. Yeah, I want to talk about him next. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman never thought you'd see him playing a baseball manager in a movie. But it works, and it's great. And so they montage the actors and the fictitious or the depictions of these real life people with the real life baseball scenes and the audio clips of what callers were saying on radio shows, what mad dog Russo and Bob Costas. And I think we, maybe Scott Van Pelt, there are a number of media legends. You hear their voices talking about the impact of everything that's going on. And you've got this just fantastic music playing along to it all. I think it's just masterful the way that they piece those scenes together. Yeah, I agree with you. And the Sports Center highlights, that's the most important part. You got Stuart Scott from Sports Center. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, people didn't grow up in this world in the early 2000s. These are all real audio clips, real TV clips. This is really well done. Again, the movie itself is just so fantastic how it's put together. Okay, let's talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman because he's an important part of the story. So Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the A's manager, Art Howe who was an old, grizzled guy, been around the game since the 70s or 60s even, I don't know. He was on the Astros way back in the day. (laughs) And he 
in the movie does not like this new style of baseball. He does not go based on computers and stats and probability. He goes based on hunches, what he sees every day, professionalism, the old school baseball way. So this movie really breaks down to Billy Bean against Art Howe, the general manager against the owner. And it's really compelling in the movie that Art Howe has control over who goes on the field. So Billy will start trading away people that so Art can't put them on the field. It's kind of a power struggle. It's really compelling in the movie, and I cannot possibly pass up the fact to point out that Art Howe hated this movie with a passion, Yeah. because in real life, he was totally on board with Billy, and they were very much in sync, and he hates this movie. Yeah, can you blame him for hating this movie? And it's really, I mean, there are scenes in this film in terms of the, and there are great scenes in terms of what makes for a great movie, in terms of the power struggle between GM and manager and I'm confident that it happens in, I, I wouldn't say most situations, but a lot of situations where there's a power struggle over, hey, I picked these players, I want you to play these players. Well, it's my lineup, and I'm going to play them the way I want to play them. And I think the game has changed a lot, and recently now you're seeing a lot more in terms of managers, whether they want to be in step with the GM or, or whether they're just taking orders from the GM. That seems like that's more of a thing where the GMs have more control over the lineups because there was a, there's a story where they chose to use an opener in the NL playoffs this past year. And Dodgers manager, Dave Roberts said, I was just a vote in the room. It wasn't his decision. And so that's something that I think is really interesting. It's also interesting because I feel for, the scouts in this movie and I feel for scouts in real life who've gone through and experienced similar at the times of like, Oh, well we, we like this guy. We think the potential's there. We love his swing. The, the stats aren't there. And then the GM shuts him down and says, you know what? Yeah, but the stats aren't there. And I think there's an equal amount of times that the scouts have been right versus when the GM has been right on those decisions. I think, like I said, it's not an all or nothing type thing. There's value to both camps. And I think one of the other things that we hadn't mentioned in terms of like really interesting lines and quotes in this movie is he has a big fight with the head scout. And this is earlier in the film and the head scout basically says he's going to quit or, or Billy says, I'm not going to fire you. <laughs> the scout quits. And one of the great lines is they're going back and forth about this idea of like you're stuck in the dinosaur ages and how you need to one of the great lines is adapt or die. And someone that you're going to have on this show to talk about another movie, Paul Oren, he was one of my professors at Valparaiso university. And in at least two of the classes that I took, he used that clip to talk about how you have to, in whatever you're doing, adapt or die. Even if things are changing, even if you don't like the way things are changing, I, we were taking journalism classes, and he was talking about how there are a bunch of guys who have been at newspapers that he's worked at, and they refuse to get on social media, or they refuse to create digital content or to podcast. And Paul's like, look, the, it's, the, the media game is changing, adapt or die. Uh, I think that's a great quote. Okay, so here we go. So basically, we're going to get to the end of the movie. Most people remember what happens is the team fails, the team fails. Art Howe, the manager, won't do things Billy's way. Billy eventually forces him by trading his players away, by forcing Art Howe to play his players. 
and we get montages here where Peter and Billy are kind of sitting with the players, explaining to, again, if you know current baseball, you know things like hot charts, hot zones, cold charts, cold yeah. zones. Every every player in baseball now knows their hot chart. They know what my batting average is over the balls here, if it's there. They know this is very common in 2022. In 2002, it was not. But we get a montage of Billy and Peter eventually getting the players to buy into the system. And this is, if I remember correctly, Mario, it feels like hot and cold charts were more of a video game thing before they were something that we were seeing in, in the big leagues. I, I remember seeing this in old 1990s baseball video oh, games. absolutely, yeah, because they have to figure out a way to simulate skill levels at different at yeah. different points in a game more than real life. Yeah. But there's two controversial things. I really want to bring this up because this is both a plus and a minus of Billy Bean's Moneyball system. And they bring it up in the movie as a plus. A lot of people over the years have brought it up as a minus. And that is Moneyball... The key to Moneyball is every out in the game is gold. You cannot waste an out. And because of that, Billy's team famously would never bunt. And the other thing is they famously would never steal a base because it's too risky to try to steal. So they will never, ever take that risk and, and add a potential for another out. And this is very key to whether you like or don't like Billy Bean's style of baseball. Because I know a lot of National League fans are probably rolling in their graves right now saying, what, you don't steal and don't bunt? Yeah, that's a great point in terms of AL versus NL, because in the American League, you're going to have nine chances to get a hit. And in the NL, you're going to, well, you have nine hitters. In the NL, you're going to have eight hitters. And that makes a big difference, because if a pitcher comes up, and this is, you know, things are going to change. We're going to have a DH in the NL by the time people listen to this podcast. But... Previously to 2022, pitchers hit in the National League, and they didn't hit very well for the most part. So the the pitcher spot was used to lay down a bunt to advance a runner. I don't think you could have this idea of no bunting if you're a National League team. I mean, that's a great question that we probably could not really cover on this podcast because it's very complex. Yeah. But I'm thinking about that as well. Would this only work with a DH lineup? Well, I think that I've heard managers go on record and say it's easier to manage in the American League because you don't have to navigate through that pitcher spot. Mm -hmm. And so you could kind of take a principle like this and not have to account for, okay, well, well, this pitcher. And, th and then the other funny thing is that some pitchers hit way better than other pitchers. So there are some pitchers who are base are better hitters than starting major league everyday position players and when you have a guy like that it's a huge advantage it all it all changes everything <laughs> yeah <laughs> although a couple other things that come out of this movie again that's why just i think this is interesting is that billy bean really pioneers the idea of you never steal a base ever which unfortunately for a lot of baseball purists still exists to this day i think stolen bases over the last 20 years are probably the lowest they have ever been yeah, And I don't know if there's any chance they're going to go up again anytime soon either, because I think a lot of general managers and managers now believe what Billy's saying. It's not worth the risk. So they just don't steal bases anymore. Yeah, I was watching the Braves and the Dodgers this past postseason. And Travis Darno, the Braves catcher, but Darno is not good at throwing guys out. And I'm watching this game. Trey Turner 
the best base stealer in all of baseball, arguably one of the fastest guys who's ever played baseball. He gets on and he's like the number two or number three hitter in the Dodgers lineup. He might have been the leadoff guy. He gets on. There's nobody out in the first inning against the Braves. And I think they were already, they may have been trailing too. I, I can't remember. They got so many big bats in this lineup. I'm watching this and I'm just thinking, steal, 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 steal. <laughs> and eventually they, so they don't have him steal. Darno was just terrible with throwing guys out in this postseason. I think he only maybe threw out one of like the 10 guys who, who ran on him. And it's interesting because that concept of don't steal is very prevalent in these new age analytical departments. And that's again, where I go back to, I, there is a human element. And in fact, this, it may say, you know what, most of the time you shouldn't steal, but there are situations where you probably should steal because of who is behind home plate. And I think a lot of these people try to simplify the game. Or I should say they oversimplify it and say, well, in every situation, don't do this or in every situation, do this where I think it's a lot more situational and you have to look at who are you facing? Who is, who's behind the plate? Who's pitching? Does this guy's wind up take five minutes as some, as some pitchers do, they take forever to get the ball uh, out of their hand and yeah, it's funny. It just made me think of a story that I have been again, Seattle Mariners fan. I follow a, uh, our official blog is called lookout landing. And it is hilarious to me. Anytime a Mariner player bunts in a game, the comment section on lookout land landing is just awash with people being horrified. <laughs> Why would you bunt ever? That is so stupid. You don't waste out. So just to point out the, the uh, legacy of Billy Bean and Moneyball to this day, again, that's the defining trait among all these Mariner fans I watch. They cannot believe a manager would ever bunt. They think it's the stupidest thing ever. And so they just they just cur cursing curse words right down the message board. It always makes me laugh. Yeah, I was seeing a lot of people freaking out. It's it's something that was a fun little plot line for this past season was Tony Larusa just came back into the game and Tony Larusa when he managed the A's, when he managed the Cardinals, it was like, man, this guy is such a progressive-minded manager. He's ahead of the curve on a lot of stuff. And now he comes back and he's like the old man and it's like, oh, he's stuck in the past and I actually think Larusa did a really good job in his first year managing the team. I'm ex I'm interested to see how the Sox, uh, how things go for the Sox for the next couple of years. But that was happening this year when Larusa was having guys bunt. He was getting wrecked on Twitter. <laughs> These twenty or thirty year old guys who are the bloggers are like, "What a moron! Why would you ever bunt?" <laughs> Again, I don't know if you guys, if you aren't real baseball, like big baseball fans, if you are amused by these stories, but I, it's just so hilarious seeing how the perception of baseball and the interaction of fans with the team has changed over the years. And just, it's, I just find this kind of stuff funny. Oh, I do too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Back in the eighties, seventies, you know, nineties, the manager was God. What the manager said <laughs> went, and that is not the, the, the thing anymore. Now, like practically the team has social media contests where the fans can vote on Twitter, what they should do tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen at some point. Oh yeah. Yeah. The audience should get to vote. I also think it's interesting because there's a, there's a point in this movie where they show, Peter Brand and Billy are sitting in the office and they have the TV on and talking about the news. And they're like, 
what's really happening here is Art Howe is just doing such a great job at managing this team. And that's still like that is a thing. The San Francisco Giants this past year had a year where they won 107 games and nobody saw them coming. And the manager, Gabe Kapler, is the one who got most of the credit. Now, over time, people tend to catch up and say, oh, look what that executive's doing. Look at how they're putting that team together. But the immediate initial reaction that people have when they see a team that's having success that might not supposed to be having success, or when you look at a situation where a team loses a Giambi or a Damon or a Jason Isringhausen, who, man, I want to talk about Isringhausen in a second, but <laughs> that situation, the immediate reaction is to always say, look at the manager, not not look at the guy in the front office box. Okay, well, uh, what, do you, what do you have to say about Isringhausen? Because I want to wrap this podcast up. we got to finish it off here. Yes, yeah, well, Jason Isringhausen, the thing that I loved in the book was that Billy talks about this idea of, he says, man, I love when I get to sell a closer because either a guy like Isringhausen leaves via free agency and they get a compensatory high draft pick or they get they trade a guy like they put Billy Koch in and then they trade him after this year and they get a nice package back. The basic idea is he says in the book, people are so overvaluing closers and saves. Mm-hmm. It's like, OK, this guy has 40 saves. And for those who don't know baseball save is when you are the last pitch, you get the final outs of a game and you didn't start the game. You preserve a lead. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the simplicity of it. And people have overvalued and said, wow, look at how good that guy is. Cause he has that many saves. And in essence, he's the guy who makes the last outs of a game. That's so great. And Billy says, well, I could just plug in any reliever and put him in the ninth inning. Now, obviously not, maybe not everyone can handle the ninth inning, but, his ringhausen leaves, and in the book, it sounds like he's giddy to be like, "Ooh, I can put Billy Koch in, and I can sell Billy Koch and get a nice package back for Billy Koch." Yeah, that mentality still for our listeners does exist to this day. That most of the good teams don't give a rip who their closer is. You could you could put anybody out there. They say forty games. You just sell real high on them to some sucker that'll pay their salary and put anybody else in there the next year. So that's very much a new school school mentality that really does kind of start with Billy being here. Absolutely. Please continue. Let's finish the movie. So, again, the gist of the movie is the team sucks at first. Everyone thinks Billy is an idiot. They think Peter Brandt is a nobody. But the minute it starts to click, Oakland will make one of the most miraculous comebacks in baseball history. And this is accurate. This is indeed the way it happened. And I can say that because the team they beat is my Seattle Mariners, who had an amazing year but could not compete with Oakland steamrolling past them with this 20-game winning streak. (laughs) <laughs> so, and again, you know, it's funny. People say, oh, the Mariners haven't made the playoffs since 2001. Yeah, because the 2002 A's started that streak. <laughs> anyway, so this is a big, long section of the movie, about 20, 30 minutes. It's not even in the book. This is insignificant in the book. It makes no difference because Billy doesn't really care about the, the – he doesn't go to the games. Billy Bean is famous for he will not watch baseball games. He just drafts Yeah, very them. superstitious guy. Superstitious and just doesn't enjoy the base the game. It's too stressful. So he will not watch them. So he's not really results-based in that way. He doesn't need to see it play out. But in the movie, Oakland goes on this tear, this winning streak, and they do become the talk of baseball. And it's it, they splice, Jack said they splice in real clips, real video, real footage, 
really well done. This is the heart of the movie where Oakland starts winning and everyone's like, oh my God, what's happening with Oakland? And everyone's starting to reconsider if Billy Bean and Moneyball actually works. And they win, what, 18, 19 games? And then they get to I think the it was tw- 20. They get they to the 20. Yeah. yeah, this is the big scene in the movie where they tie the major league record for 20 wins in a row, which statistically, as they point out in the movie, should never happen. No baseball team should ever win 20 games in a row because most teams are around 500, plus or minus. So to flip a coin and get 20 in a row is really almost impossible. So a 20-game win streak is something that's amazing, and it really did happen in real life. This is all true. Yeah, in in fact, we get the scene where Scott Hatterberg hits the walk-off home run. It's this it's this great scene because the A's are up ten nothing, eleven nothing, and the Royals come back. They tie the game, and Hatterberg ends up being the big hero. He pinch hits for Eric Burns. He hits a home run for to walk it off. It's it gives me chills as I watch this again and again. And this is actually true. This is actually a true story that happens in real life, believe it or not. And I think if I recall, they show Chris Pratt swinging the bat and hitting the ball. But in the replay, they show the actual Scott Hatterberg home run. They use the real footage. They, Yeah, that's correct. They do that. It's seamless, too. It's, it's amazing. And this was a really real-life moment. Oakland really did win 20 in a row in this improbable year they did it by fall by having an 11 nothing lead billy bean goes to the field because he wants to watch them break the record his daughter implores him to go watch his first game and they almost choke so billy (laughs) may have disowned his daughter that night if they lost that game (laughs) but they do come back it's a big moment everyone remembers scott hatterberg our hero (laughs) the hayseed he's from my area of the country but they make him look like a hayseed in the movie (laughs) But hits the home run to win the game. It's a really big moment, a nice moment. And unfortunately, that's if you haven't seen the movie, you kind of forget that it ends bittersweet because that's the last happy part of the movie. Yeah, it is the last happy part of the movie. And it's this is really the great. There are two scenes in this movie that absolutely just move me emotionally. And this is the first of the two. Yeah, Hattie hits the home run. It's a really great moment. Great scene. One of the best baseball scenes they've ever had in a movie. But then Oakland loses in the next round in the playoffs because, famously, Billy's shit doesn't work in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should point out, it's 2022 when you're listening to this podcast. Billy Bean has still never won a World Series. This movie is 20, 20 years in the past. He is still floundering trying to reach that you know Im- ungraspable ring at the, the, at the merry-go-round. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I'm hoping that someone listens to this in the year 2026 and by now billy bean has won a world series but we'll see he's won three by now (laughs) (laughs) that podcast was stupid they make it talk like the most winningest manager in baseball history never won a world (laughs) series those idiots (laughs) yeah so afterwards billy loses they get really far and billy gives a very prophetic speech to peter here he says you know that's the problem the only game that counts in baseball is the last game of the season And if we don't win that last game, they'll dismiss us. They'll say this was a fluke. And that is literally exactly what happens, is that Oakland loses in the playoffs, and everyone's like, ah, Billy and Moneyball, they were a fluke. None of that would have worked. It was an improperly constructed team. And that's the the thing that has haunted Billy really to this day. Yeah, and it's, it's still going on, as you mentioned. They haven't won yet. Billy Bean is still, 20 years later, he is the manager 
I mean, he's probably the VP at this point. I think he's a notch above GM, but he's he's the one who's calling all the shots for this team. He recently had an opportunity. The New York Mets had an opening for VP, said, hey, you want to come over here to New York? And he said, eh, no thanks, I'll pass. And really, I think that I don't think Billy Bean is ever going to leave the Oakland A's. That's my that's my honest opinion. As a Mariners fan, I could not wish he could leave fast enough. Please leave <laughs> Oakland. I hate losing to you guys. <laughs> Go to the Mets. But he is set for life. If he wants to stay, he can have this job. I mean, unless something happens behind the scenes that's extremely bad or they were to just absolutely plateau and he ends up becoming the guy who's stuck in his old ways and it isn't adapting. He's the one who's dying. He's going to continue to stay in that position with the A's. And I don't, if I were him, I wouldn't want to leave because he's set for life. You, you spread your wings. You go to a situation where there's a greater desire to win immediately, especially New York media market. And the Mets have been such a dysfunctional organization your legacy can be tarnished. You might, you're not going to have the same kind of job security. So I think he's, I think he's set for life here in Oakland. Yeah, it's a tough call because in many ways he's a tragic figure. He helped pioneer this stuff. It never actually wins. He to this day is still probably called a bean counter, one of these computer nerds. Never can make his team cross the finish line. But like you said, he has job security for life. He, uh, Oakland always probably operates at a profit because of him. They succeed in spite of every variable that says they shouldn't. So it really just depends on how much winning means to him now. Like in 2002, this is all he wanted. I want to beat the system. I want to win. <laughs> I don't know if he's still that hungry in 2022. I couldn't tell you. But like you said, he now owns the team, basically. He's set for life. He could do whatever. So maybe it's more of a disadvantage to go somewhere else and have your legacy tarnished. I don't I don't know. I'm not him, but I do see the argument. You could say he's a very tragic figure, though. Yeah, and I think that the movie actually helps him in that regard because when we were out in Oakland, we met up with the one of the marketing directors for the team, and he was talking about just how hard it is to get people to come to the games. And hopefully for their sake, they get a new stadium built eventually, maybe in a nicer part of town where people want to come out to the games a little more. Everyone's leaving Oakland, which is sad for that community, but it's not, it's not a great area. It's not a great ballpark. And I think what, so what the marketing director said was after Moneyball, basically I, I, this was six years ago, seven years ago, and it's probably going to stay the same for the next 10 years or so. People, when they get a tour or whenever they talk to someone who works for the A's, they always say, Oakland A's are my second favorite team because they're charming, they're likable, they're always a great story. Everyone wants to see it, and Moneyball brought this story out to not just the baseball fans who already knew about it, but the casual people, people who aren't even baseball fans, love this movie. Yeah, tell me if you've heard this before. The A's are my second favorite team. <laughs> behind Seattle. Now, you didn't mention it. Do you know the big problem the A's face? It's not so much that they are in a bad area of town or that people don't want to go to their stadium. Do you know what the bigger problem is? Because I know that area real well. Is it something with the local government? It is the fact Oakland wants to expand south to San Jose. Now, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if people know, San Jose may be the richest part of the country. It might be because that's Silicon Valley. There is so much money there and so much love for baseball 
Oakland going down to San Jose would be amazing. They would be a huge draw. But the San Francisco Giants have staked a claim there since the 60s that say legally they own that fan base, that San Jose is theirs, even though Oakland is physically closer. So Oakland has been fighting with San Francisco for years to try to move down there into all the money. San Francisco and the league has blocked them, and it's been tied up in litigation for decades. Yeah, I think I had heard a little bit about that, and it it's I've heard I've also heard that they wanted to go to Oak to go to San Jose for a long time. I I didn't exactly understand the ins and outs of how and why it hasn't happened, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's all I hate to say this, the Giants are bastards. I hate that. I <laughs> I think it would be so great if you had two huge superpower teams in the Bay Area because my that's where I went to school. My in laws are there. We're there every couple months. I love that area. I love the A's. San Jose would just embrace the A's. Now, not everyone. This is very, I'm sure it's true for Chicago, for New York. You're either a Giants fan or an A's fan, and you're not going to switch. You're one or the other. But, man, for getting young fans and a lot of money and a budget, if the A's were down in San Jose, it would be such a game changer. Yeah, it really would be. Oh. And we could get back to the plot of the movie here. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're done, really. I mean, that's that's the end of the movie. So, Billy fails at the end he gets no credit all the fans think he was an idiot all the lay people think he was an idiot but it turns out all the people in baseball who are smart understand what billy's doing under the constraints of his budget and he gets a contract at the end of the movie from the boston red sox where they like you know we're the most progressive organization in baseball you do what you're doing in oakland come to boston we'll give you a budget we're bringing in bill james nobody's ever hired this guy before i don't know why we have the greatest thing in the history of baseball going here. And Billy wants to do it, but he can't. And it, it's that, that the real touching scene at the end with him and Peter where they're talking about if Billy should take it. And Billy basically says, I made one decision in my life for money. That was when I signed a contract to play baseball. I didn't take my Stanford scholarship. I've regretted it ever since. I'm not going to take this job just for money. And Peter tells him he's nuts, right? Peter goes, you should absolutely take it. Yeah, there are actually two great scenes here that move me, I, I, in addition to the Hatterberg one. So three total, and it's these scenes with Jonah Hill. And again, Jonah Hill is so good in this movie. He is so good with Brad Pitt, the two of them. This was the movie that actually introduced me to Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, I, I know he had his show Parks and Rec. He was early in his career. This was probably the biggest role he had gotten at this point in his career and i think this is an important movie for you know several people that are involved in the production of this movie this scene that you mentioned they're sitting around and they watch this clip of jeremy brown hitting this home run and jeremy brown hits a home run and well i guess i i spoiled it but he he he's scared of running the second base this was a real life thing because of he was an overweight guy we talked on about him earlier and as he's rounding first, he, he he has a big hit, and he decides, I'm going to try to go to second base. I'm going to stretch this out into double. And he falls, and he slips, and it's his worst fear. It's something that he had feared, basically. I don't want to fall. And there are these weird things. You know, these baseball players, John Lester couldn't throw to first base, and Chuck Knobloch had problems throwing the ball to first base. Like, baseball's a game where you have these weird mental blocks that can be unlocked and locked and Jeremy Brown, for whatever reason, does not want to round first base. He does. He falls on his face, and people are laughing at him. 
and he just looks so embarrassed. The reason he, he ends up finding out the reason why people are laughing at him is because he hit the home run and he didn't even realize it. He The ball went over the wall. And there's a lot going on here in terms of Jonah Hill, or sorry, Peter Brand telling Billy, look, this is what you did. You're so hyper-competitive. You succeeded and you didn't even realize it. And then there's a greater message with this, which we can touch on with the final scene of the movie. But it is, it's so good. I love it. Yeah. So this is the denouement to the movie, Billy deciding if he actually succeeded this year or not. All the smart people in baseball say he did. All the idiot fans on social media and talk radio said he didn't. And Billy has a choice. Do I want to go to Boston? Do I want to be part of the most progressive, smartest, Bill James-led analytic team of all time, bring them to the World Series, or stay here in Oakland and do this where it's more of a challenge, but I actually did it this year. At the end of the movie, we find out Billy did not take the money. He stayed in Oakland, and he has been there ever since. Yeah, and so they make it look like he's potentially, well, actually, it sounds like he's going to make the decision to leave. And he gets this uh, CD from his daughter, and they show her earlier in the movie that she's trying to play guitar, and she's just humming along to the song. And this is actually... Did you know this song before the movie, Mario? I've heard it. I have no idea who sings it or what it's called, but I've heard the melody. Okay. So it's a song called uh, The Show, and I think the artist's name is Lenka or Lena. Lenka, I think, is Lenka. And it was a sort of an indie song. I had heard it before this movie. So it's kind of funny because some people are like, there's no way that this little girl would write this song. And <laughs> that's not they never really say that she writes this song because it's a song that's popular. But for whatever reason, she was learning to play it on guitar and she decided to record it, a CD of it, gives it to her dad, leaves a little note on it. He puts it in his disc player. And there are a lot of great scenes of Billy driving around in the car. It's been building up. We didn't mention it earlier, but there are a lot of scenes where he's listening to what people have to say about him while he's riding in the car. Well, this time he puts the CD in. And she says something along the lines of, hey, I, I, please let me know if you change your mind, if you end up not going to Boston, if you choose to stay here. Otherwise, you're a really great dad and I love you. And then she sings this song and you just see him tearing up. The gist of the song is it says, uh, just enjoy the show. It's really the the message of this final scene. It's like, it's kind of like this idea of getting so hung up on the losses of wins and or the outcomes of wins and losses that you don't enjoy yourself. You don't have any fun. And in this song, she's saying, just enjoy the show. And it's it's powerful. You see him start to tear up. And then when I watched this a few weeks ago and I watched it again yesterday in preparation for this movie, I started tearing up, Mario. For the first time I've watched this movie in several years, it, it hit me. It struck a chord with me. It is. It's very touching. Again, such a well-done storyline, how it's all set up, him and his daughter, how she's worked into the story. And he basically, so it's implied, he basically learns to enjoy the ride, but he stays in Oakland because his daughter's nearby. He wants to be part of her life. Yeah, he wants to be a part of her life. There are reasons that he, he values the family. He, in real life gets remarried and he values her life. I think he also, it sort of hints at this idea of he likes the challenge of like, yeah, you know what? 
I may not have been able to do it. We may not have won a World Series. What we accomplished was pretty special. It revolutionized the game of baseball. And it's something that is like, I love this challenge of, you know what? I could go to Boston and we're probably going to win. They had a really good team set up. Theo Epstein comes in. Bill James is working there. And really, Theo gets a lot of credit, but he didn't have to change much to that team. It was a team that had been in the postseason again and again, high payroll. And he knows, you know what, I could I could go to Boston and I'm going to have a much easier time winning a World Series there. But if I win here, it's going to be so much more meaningful. This is not in the movie, but I would extrapolate a little bit from the book, is that Billy's always had this rage in him. And I kind of suspect there's a little in that. I'm going to prove them all right. I can do it. Yeah. Well, he also says earlier there's a scene where he gets ticked off at Jeremy Giambi because he's dancing. And I don't even know what that dance move was that he was doing. It was very strange. He's like shaking his butt, like standing on a box after they lose a game. And Billy is so ticked off and he slams a bat to turn off the music. And he says, uh, is losing fun? And he's like, no. He's like, well, what are you having fun for? And they says, I hate losing. I hate it. I, I, I hate losing more than I enjoy winning. And I've been around sports for not a super long time, but a long enough time. I've covered sports. I have had jobs where I've covered teams. And when you spend a lot of time around athletes, there are athletes that are this way where they do not enjoy winning. They as much as they hate losing. And that's what keeps them wired to keep competing. And you see that with Billy Bean. And I guess at this point we should mention the extreme gut punch of an ending. So Billy's made his decision. He's not going to take the big money with Boston. He's going to stay in Oakland. He's going to do it his way, the Oakland way. And then it roll credits. It's a nice little moment. And now we get the little epilogue where they print a couple words on the screen where uh, – <laughs> It's the kind of thing that kind of ruins the story a little bit for Billy Bean here. <laughs> it says, Billy turned down Boston's offer, $12.5 million a year, which would have made him the highest paid general manager in the history of sports. <laughs> Two years later, the Boston Red Sox, the team that was trying to hire him, win the World Series for the first time since 1918, dot, 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 using Oakland's tactics. <laughs> So it's a, again, a kind of a tragic figure, Billy Bean, that all his all his uh, tactics were proven to be right as long as they were implemented on a team with a budget. And had he gone to Boston, he would have been proven right. But to this day, people still think Billy can never quite, quite cross the finish line because only Boston was able to do it using his tactics. <laughs> oh, and then the final the final part, it just says Billy is still trying to win the last game of the season. Yeah. He tried. He he tried, man. I mean, it's it's such a Boston thing, right, to take that from somebody else. Like it, it's so it's so emblematic of of the city of Boston. <laughs> I was just saying, it's funny how you say that because it's really generational, depending on where you when you grew up. Me growing up in the seventies, eighties, and nineties would find that the funniest sentence ever. Don't we hate it how Boston always wins everything from everybody? <laughs> but since then, they become a powerhouse. So whatever. Yeah, no, they're title town USA of the 21st century. Before that, though, they were not. They certainly were not. I was just thinking in terms of like the whole Boston person type thing of like, hey, yeah, I'm taking that from you. You're, you're going to 
Yeah. <laughs> and with that, I believe we have covered Moneyball. Perhaps more of the story behind it than the actual movie. I feel bad we didn't delve too much into the nuts and bolts of the movie, but I also don't feel we have to. I think the movie kind of stands on its own. I just wanted to present a little bigger picture for my audience of there's a lot going on in this movie. There was a lot behind the movie, some real, some not real. But again, like I said at the start, it works out as a happy little accident that the movie is just absolutely fantastic. And it, it really didn't have to be, but it is. Yeah, it's fantastic because they modified the script so many times. I If we saw the first version of the script and it was originally going to be directed by Steven Soderbergh, it's an entirely different movie, and I, I highly doubt it's anywhere as good as what the movie that we end up getting. Is that the one where Jonah Hill plays David Justice? <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me. Did you ever watch Eastbound and Down? I have never seen it, no. Okay. Well, you would like it. I think you'd like it. There's a scene in Eastbound and Down where we're supposed to believe that Seth Rogen is the closer for the Texas Rangers. <laughs> Just so unbelievable. I, I cannot take it seriously. <laughs> what, they couldn't get him to play the speedy black leadoff hitter? <laughs> you know, I've seen Tim Robbins pitch in Bull Durham, so I, I've seen everything I can see on a baseball movie. <laughs> That's true. That's a fair point. Well, we're going to wrap it up. I know it was a two-hour podcast. I appreciate you guys for uh, sticking with us. Again, I'm trying to do more sports movies this year just because it's such a big part of my background and with my history of Moneyball and being right there in that community and Jack being a sports writer, I thought, oh, this will be a perfect episode. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Did you have fun, Jack? I had a lot of fun and I really enjoyed, I mean, we went, we went a long time, but it, the time went by so quick. I could do another two and a half hours with you right now, Mario. This is <laughs> talking about two of my favorite things, talking about a great movie, talking about the great game of baseball. Yeah, the limits of the podcast are the only reason I am stopping. I could easily go another hour <laughs> with Jack just talking stuff, but we'll save that for another episode. I'll get him on for another movie. But uh, Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, before you go, you want to plug anything? How can people find your uh, show? You can check out my podcast, it's called The Jack Vita Show. It's not too hard to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, wherever it is that people listen to podcasts. It's primarily a sports show, but I also like to interview people that I find interesting. So people from the world of entertainment, people from uh, sports, but also I know something that your listeners might be interested in is people from the world of reality television. So most recently I had on Survivor Borneo icon Dr. Sean Kniff, which is a really fun conversation. I've also done a lot of episodes in the past several months with Survivor legend Stephanie LaGrosa Kendrick, who also has a baseball connection because her husband won a World Series with the Philadelphia Phillies. So Stephanie and I have done several podcast episodes together, and we're going to do some more together as well. Uh, she's a lot of fun to speak with. So she and I most recently spoke with her nephew, who's a Little League All-Star, and he had his games televised on ESPN. They almost made it to the Little League World Series. So that was a really fun and adorable conversation you guys might enjoy. In addition to that, most recently we had the most downloaded episode in the history of the Jack Vita show when I brought on you, Mario, and your Survivor historian teammate, Jay Fisher. And that was a really fun conversation. We just 
talked a lot of MLB offseason analysis and shared some fun baseball stories and memories from our times watching baseball. Mario, your fan, your simulation leagues that you've always been interested in running with fantasy baseball. Jay talking about the 1980s Dodgers. It was a, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, speaking of the Oakland A's, we uh, I most recently had on an A's pitcher, actually, a guy who pitched for the club for several years. His name's Ryan Dahl. He's actually an MLB record holder for the longest streak of stranding inherited runners. So that was a lot of fun. So if you guys are interested in Moneyball and you want a little more of a peek behind the curtain with the Oakland A's organization, you guys can go and check that one out. His name's Ryan Dull. It was a lot of fun. So you guys should come join me on the Jack Vita Show for a fun mix of sports analysis and interviews with great guests. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook, or go to my website, jackvita.com. Check out my work as well on fastball over at si.com. Just Google SI Fastball and you'll see the hundreds of stories that I'm writing over at that site. I'm doing a lot. I do 40 a week. So I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jack Vita Show. So I hope to have a lot of great content coming in the year 2023. And I hope to have you on with me again soon, Mario. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And I want to thank Jack for stopping by. And again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love. And I sure as hell will not be bunting the runner over in the process. I will talk to you guys later. Bye. You don't know how to play first base. Scott? That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Hey, anything worth doing is.